And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition, live again tonight, because the communications gods are obviously smiling, on the other side of midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when almost anything can happen, and then we, of course, talk about it here. And as I've said so many times now, what used to be reserved for this time of night and morning seems to be taking place all over the world 24-7. I'm really intrigued. There are many uh, uh, network people, remember I used to work for one of them, uh, who sign off these days saying, thank you for staying with us in these extraordinary times. It's like they've even kind of noticed that we're living in extraordinary times and uh that's kind of like what we're going to talk about this morning because the extraordinary times include uh, a very ancient ritual which was carried out uh, a couple weeks ago which is the coronation of king charles the third i.e our familiar uh, son of queen elizabeth uh, the second um, prince charles who became with great pomp and circumstance and ceremony, uh, King of England. And as I said in our banner, um, as you're going to hear tonight, there is really legitimate reason to wonder whether, in fact, Charles could be the last King of England. In fact, whether Charles could be the last monarch of England. And uh, as my grandmother would have said, thereby hangs an extraordinary tale. So, before we get into all that, uh, for those of you who are new to the show, we have a section of the website, uh, if you're listening on the other side of midnight.com, or if you're listening on the radio, or you're listening on on your gadgets or devices or, you know, whatever, um, called Radio with Pictures. So, let me tell you how to get to it, because we have visuals, we have stories, we have connective tissue, we have background reference material uh, you don't have to look at it in real time. You can wait until the archive or the player when you maybe want to listen to the show again. But we do have background material so that you can kind of go beyond the three hours that we spend with you uh, on Saturdays and Sunday nights. Item number one, um, probably the biggest crisis that we face, and I don't want to kind of leave the show with crises, but in this case, we kind of have to is something which I think because it involves finances and money and banks and debt and accountants and economists, you know, most people's eyes just kind of glaze over when the subject of finances comes up, except, of course, if it's uh, their own. We're talking this several weeks now, from now basically through June 1st, about something called the debt ceiling. Now, given that the Speaker of the House and the President of the United States are not in sync on this, even tonight. Um, The President, uh, according to the story, which is item number one, uh, you go to the, uh, you click on tonight's show banner, which is all about King Charles, very regal-looking photograph there of, of the King. You click on that, that will take you to the guest page, and then under the guest page it says to listen to the show, and then under that, it says guest page and my name under a section called Fast Links. Click on my name. That will take you to my section of Radio with Pictures. 
Item number one, this is a story out of NBC, <clears throat> which basically says that uh, the um, conversations over the debt ceiling are going to resume tomorrow. The president will be back in town from his uh, G7 meeting in Japan in, of all places, Hiroshima. And he and the Speaker of the House are going to uh, get together and discuss this very misunderstood concept of the debt ceiling. It has nothing to do with future monies or future stuff. It's about paying your debts. And we might, because it's going to come to a head uh, next weekend, we might actually be doing a show on this. Uh, uh, I will inform everyone, and you just keep looking at the website, and you will see banners or, and promos and all that to that effect if we, in fact, get the right people to come together to do that kind of show. The reason this is falls under the aegis of extraordinary times is because in 250 years, give or take, the United States has never defaulted on its debt. And the Republicans in the House of Representatives seem adamant this time, at least a minority, to have us fall over the cliff. No one nowhere that I have seen is described in any detail the absolutely catastrophic global events which would ensue if the United States of America decided formally through congressional inaction not to pay its debts. It would be the equivalent, as I alluded to last night, of detonating a tactical nuclear weapon in Washington, D.C., because you might think if you're in California that destroying Washington would have no effect on your life, you would be wrong. And I'm hoping, really hoping, that someone somewhere will put together the right set of, of uh, information and lay out to the American people, both Republicans and Democrats, exactly why we cannot be allowed to default on the debt of the United States, given that the... Uh, Dollar is the reserve currency of the world. And all those terms like currency and reserve and debt ceiling and all that, all that's so arcane to most people, their eyes, back to my grandmother, just glaze over. This is equivalent to a limited nuclear war if it were to take place. So it cannot be allowed to take place. How this administration is going to avoid the catastrophic pitfall of not paying the debts of the United States per the 14th Amendment. The, the debt and credit of the United States shall not be questioned. That is going to be potentially the topic for next uh, Saturday and or Sunday. I haven't decided yet because part of that depends on people's availability and time. And Anyway, um, we need to keep an eye on this because – if you want to transform Earth into a um, science fiction post-apocalyptic world without firing a shot, this is the quickest way to do it. Which, of course, kind of raises my conspiratorial bump, wondering if someone, in fact, wants us to do this unthinkable thing, which will plunge the planet into such heartache and such catastrophe at so many different levels of society and so many different nations and 
world organizations and order and the way things normally are supposed to run, that it's maybe the reason why no one's really explained it is because it's almost unexplainable. It's so awful. It's so catastrophic. So moving on. Tonight we're going to talk about monarchy, not just the monarchy of Great Britain, but I found a remarkable piece on uh, um, called It's Not Just Britain Where Monarchy Survives. This is a list, item number two, um, of all of the places on earth currently still performing a monarchical, let me say that again, monarchical, say that quickly with, with three whiskeys, a monarchical form of government, i.e. not a republic, not a democracy, but someone in charge who has um, family and hereditary ties to being in charge. Now, is that any way to pick leadership? Well, of course not. Um, But history has shown that over 99.99% of known human history, monarchies, kingdoms, autocrats, dictators, tyrants, whatever you want to call them, they have been the norm. Remember, we're the great experiment. And we're kind of, you know, hanging 10 over the edge of the board here. And the one real test is going to be this coming deadline, you know, within a day or so of June 1st, when we must pay our debts or horrible, and I really mean horrible things will happen to everyone, not just the elites, not just the elected leadership, not just people you know, sitting in state houses or sitting in the Congress, but everyone from dog catchers to airline pilots to doctors, housewives, kids going to school, and most important, everyone receiving a check for Social Security. If we do not pay our debts, that means the government by law cannot pay you, which means that source of critical funding for you instantly goes away. Does that make it catastrophic enough? Anyway, a story in progress to be completed in the next couple weeks. Stay tuned. Another thing that happened uh, this afternoon, we now have uh, two private citizens, two Saudis uh, en route to the International Space Station, courtesy of SpaceX, and Axiom Space, which is a private enterprise space company based in Houston and staffed by a lot of uh, former NASA people. And they sent uh, Peggy Whitson. She's the commander. She is an incredibly prolific and uh, well-backgrounded uh, astronaut who has had, among other things, something like 60 hours of EVA time. Can you imagine spending 60 hours cumulative over 10 spacewalks in a spacesuit outside above the earth in a vacuum looking at that stunning incredibly transformative scene of the earth passing by below you while you're working on the station in orbit that's peggy whitson and anyway she's commander of the second private enterprise flight uh in the dragon spacecraft named freedom to the International Space Station, where they're going to spend about 10 days. Uh, This is all in preparation for 
<clears throat> excuse me, commercial spin-offs of the space station, which will ultimately wind up with uh, zero gravity hotels and restaurants and tourism and anyway, the future appears in terms of private space development to be great as long as you do not try to get anywhere near the moon. By the way, apropos of last night and specifically directed to one of my guests tonight, again, Robert Morningstar, um, after we all got through with the show last night and I went upstairs and had a bite to eat and could do a little research, you know, now that my internet is back, um, I found out that the Japanese Hakato mission and Hakato, which is the name of the Japanese lander on the 25th of April on my birthday that was supposed to be the first successful private landing of a robot on the moon. Uh, it turned out that Hakato, the name of the Japanese uh, lander spacecraft, means bunny, rabbit in Japanese. Now, wait a minute. There's, 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 there's a trend curve here because the Chinese have sent two rabbits, Jade Rabbit 1 and Jade Rabbit 2, as rovers on the Chang missions named after the Chinese goddess of the moon who had a big pet rabbit. Except he wasn't named Harvey. He was named uh, Jade. Well, it turns out that the Japanese decided for rather intriguing reasons out of all the possible names they could have attached to a spacecraft that they were going to try to land on the moon first. It, by the way, crashed, if you weren't listening last night. This is like two or three weeks ago. Um, they decided to name that mission Rabbit. What is it about rabbits and a um, conundrum to be explored in future programs? Finally, number four, uh, we're going to be talking about the coronation we're going to be talking about why King Charles III could, in fact, legitimately be illegitimate. Does that make sense? Barbara Honiger has got some extraordinary research backed up by some things that Georgia uh, Lambert's going to add in the third hour. And there will be plenty of commentary and discussion and back and forth among the other panelists we have tonight uh, regarding the legitimacy of the swearing-in or the coronation, to use a more monarchical term, of the, the, the third Charles of England, because it looks like, from all evidence we can, we can ascertain, and Barbara will go into great detail, <clears throat> that the literal foundation on which the uh, royalty and the reign of King Charles III will rest is a fake. It's counterfeit. It's not real. Which, of course, under the ritual of coronation of kings and queens and monarchs, brings into serious question the legitimacy of King Charles III to the very bottom of his throne. And what can that mean or portend for the future? Well, remember back when Queen Elizabeth suddenly died and King, uh, uh, King and Charles automatically became king prior to, obviously, the formalization through the coronation ritual. 
One of the things that I went out on a limb and kind of forecast, which is very dangerous these days in any business, but certainly in this business, is that at some point, Charles could become deeply embroiled or maybe involved in the leadership of the movement toward disclosure of our ET family, our companions, the visitors, the larger realm, the galaxy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of said, not, not you know, tongue-in-cheek, who better? Because, of course, the very concept of monarchy, of an authoritarian ruler who rules by the divine rights of the gods upstairs is the idea way back in uh, Sumerian literature times, Gilgamesh et al., that kingship was lowered from heaven. So who better to intercede with heaven, i.e. extraterrestrials, on behalf of the human family than someone who is heading a leading monarchy on planet Earth tonight? That was, that was kind of like my thesis for why we should kind of be intrigued uh, even now when the majority of the British public apparently don't seem to give a damn, according to some information that Barbara's going to give us uh, about the monarchy. Why should we? Because it may be that politically strategic avenue between knowing nothing about what's really going on out there and finally being included in the larger galactic family. And it's way overdue. Well, anyway, apropos of that model, that idea, that projection of why we should kind of be looking at the British monarchy and at King Charles, item number four popped up. This is from the mirror. A UFO was spotted flying over the coronation as a mysterious red tetrahedral-shaped object kind of interweaving with a whole bunch of British uh, jet fighters that did a flyover during the rainy afternoon when the coronation procession was being held. And item number four is the story from the mirror with a photograph of this very bizarre UFO spotted over the coronation. Almost like someone somewhere is saying, you know that Hoagland, he made me onto something. Pay attention. Let's be that as it may, let me introduce our, our first panelist and our in fact I'm gonna introduce all our guests and then I'm gonna ask Barbara to to start first because she has amassed some fascinating information which goes to the heart of the whole idea is the current king of Britain. Great Britain, England, is he legitimate? Barbara Honiger uh, has served as a high-level government uh, official, including as a White House policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and uh, this all took place, of course, during the Reagan administration. For more than a decade, she was also the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and national securities affair research university of the Department of Defense. She is co-chairman of the board of investigative researcher and an investigative researcher with the Lawyers Committee 
for 9-11 Inquiry. Since September 11th, she has been leading a leading author, a documentarian, public speaker, and a major activist on the events surrounding 9-11 with emphasis on the Pentagon attack and the anthrax attacks which followed, including presentations and tours in the U.S., Europe, and in Canada. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. You can, you can read her about her book, October Surprise, which is a heck of a good read. Um, when you go to the other side of midnight and click on Barbara in the line that says fast links to bios. So Barbara's going to be one of our panelists tonight. Robert Morningstar is back with us. Uh, Robert is a civilian intelligence analyst, an investigative journalist, uh, has a degree in psychotherapy and currently lives and works in New York City. And the rest of his background is, I mean, he's an expert in Chinese, Chinese culture, history, martial arts. He's a licensed pilot. He runs uh, his own radio show. He's publisher, editor of the UFO Spotlight and UFO Digest. In other words, he's one of those folks I love. A generalist. Um, Let's see who else is with us. Well, we've got Maria Wheatley. Maria is a second generation dowser. From England, she's live with us tonight, morning, early, early morning, her time. Uh, She was taught by European master dowsers, her late father, and Chinese geomance. Maria is a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and stone circles, and she's an accomplished author of many books on sacred sites and dowsing, and there's a new one just out. She just got back from Egypt, and Egypt is connected bizarrely to the story of the possible illegitimacy of King Charles III. So obviously that's why she is here. Uh, Let's see, who am I missing? I'm I'm missing Ruggiero, but he's not going to be with us. And Georgia Lambert won't be with us until the third hour. So without further ado, let me welcome Barbara to the other side of midnight. And where are you taking us tonight? Can you hear me okay, Richard? We hear you five by. (laughs) Okay. Well, the first thing I want to say is um, I'm just really excited this program is finally happening with all of the technical details because I was afraid Charles would die. (laughs) And and William would be crowned king before it happened. So so I'm, I'm delighted that it's finally happening because it really is important. Isn't it? New Mexico is gorgeous, but I'm telling you folks, it's a third world country in terms of infrastructure. And that's probably going to change because of the almost $2 trillion infrastructure bill that was passed, you know, several months ago. But change is minuscule here in the land of enchantment tonight. So I'm thankful that we're on the air. Everything is working and we're dying. I'm dying to hear what you got for us. Well, one other comment to what you just said, and then I'll get into it, this fascinating, fascinating history that directly affects the United States as well as Great Britain and and the British Commonwealth. But the other comment, um, just bouncing off what you just said is, well, if we don't raise the debt ceiling, I think not just New Mexico is going to be a third world country. Exactly. Yeah, I think the whole country would be a third world country. you know, just for the record, I don't believe that they will allow that to happen. Well, I, th- I think that Biden is adamant he's going with the 14th Amendment, despite all the careful circumlocution around it. 
And then Mm -hmm. it's basically up to the courts. And I cannot imagine the Supreme Court basically, you know, detonating a tactical nuclear war around the world because of some misreading of the Constitution. It's in plain language. Shall not be questioned. Period. You cannot give someone a two contradictory statements and insist that they follow both. They have to make a choice. The president has to make a choice. Either he fulfills all the other laws that Congress passes, or he fulfills this one and trashes all the other laws. To me, it seems like a very simple legal choice. Well, if he does go that route and doesn't do a final negotiation by June 1st, and it goes to the Supreme Court, he could take it to the Supreme Court on an emergency basis. It would be hard for me to imagine that this court, at least six of whom, the justices, call themselves originalists. Yes, yes. It is clear in the clear language of the Constitution that that shall not happen. Well, the thing I think is going to happen is that Biden is going to invoke the 14th. And then, of course, the Republicans, the the weird out there minority that would want to kill the country, obviously, they're going to object. And then what will happen is the court will have to step in with a stay, which says the U.S. can continue to pay its debts while the court mulls this conundrum. And then after a decent interval, they're going to come down in favor of the 14th Amendment. There's no other legal route that I can see. But that stay is critical because it means there will be no interregnum where no one gets paid while the courts tries to sort this out. Right. Well, the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, has stated that if June 1st comes and there isn't an agreement, that it's not that all debts won't be paid, but the Treasury and herself in particular they're going to choose which debts to pay. Yeah, which means under the Constitution, the president has to decide to obey this law from Congress, but not that law. And mm-hmm. this appropriation, yep. and, 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 and there's no line item veto anywhere in, in the uh, Constitution. In fact, it's been ruled against, I think, at least twice by the court. Yeah, yeah no, there's no line item veto. Many presidents have especially Republican presidents have tried to get it, yep, but yep. Congress won't give it to him. <laughs> Congress <laughs> is uh, rightly jealous of its power when it decides to. So anyway, <clears throat> to get into this fascinating, fascinating history. Um, well, let's, uh, let's, let's start with this. What got you, a solid American citizen, member of the Washington establishment back then, you know, a player in the whole Reagan transformative, you know, administration's, what got you interested in the arcane history of the British monarchy? <laughs> well, I was actually going to start with the answer to that question. So that's, uh, that was great timing. So <clears throat> believe it or not, I started on this whole uh, quest. And we got about a minute before the break. Oh, oh. So well, tease, should we wait? Tease, should we tease, wait? tease vigorously. Tease, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It all started... When my husband, my late husband, uh, Dr. Richard St. Clair Murray, received a box of documents from his father that had belonged to his grandfather, who was a British Army captain. And in that box, there we learned 
that his grandfather had attended the coronation ceremony right after um, Queen Victoria died. So that's the teaser. Okay. Um, all right. We, we can kind of hold it there. What I'm going to do tonight is I, I thought we would take some of the music, the really amazing music they played during the coronation, and use it as our bumper music tonight. So here's our first cut. I think this is Zadok the Priest, written by Handel. Music, official music for the coronation of King Charles III. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. everyone on this Sunday night, May 21st. Everyone, I want you to realize, because Robert did me a great favor last night in doing the mathematics live on the air, tonight is the 62nd anniversary, literally, to the night since President John F. Kennedy set Americans and the United States and Apollo on its inevitable history-changing course to the surface of the moon 62 years ago may 21st tonight
Okay, Barbara, go for it. Barbara? Okay, that's great introduction music. <laughs> that, was the, that was the music, Jad the Priest, that was played uh, during the anointing of King Charles, which is the really probably the most important part of the ceremony that they claim links the monarch to God. Um, the rest of it, the crowning and all of that is, is more, more temporal, <clears throat> but that is the music that was played. What, what I found people. so weird is that that part, the anointing with sacred oils and all that, and the, you know, dedication by Handel to the priest goes way back to ancient times. I, I believe it's uh, Israeli uh, kingship. And I believe the the weirdest part was it was all done in secret. They brought out these huge, gorgeously colored velvet screens, and they put them all around the throne. So this embalming, this this uh, sacred oil anointing was all done out of sight of any of the people in the cathedral, anybody on television, anybody else in the church. It was done in secret, which kind of is the imprimatur of the idea of this relationship between a monarch and the deity. Yes. Yes. And just before that happened, Charles walked in with magnificent robes. And just before that happened, part of the ceremony is that those robes are removed. And he was just in like a white cotton nightshirt when he then sat on the throne and those panels were screens were brought around him, four screens on either side. Obviously, they had cameras on the ceiling, but those were not being played live. So right. that no one in the church except for the um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, who, um, who anointed him with this oil that had, in fact, come from um, <clears throat> uh, the Mount of Olives in Israel. Uh-huh. The actual words of this ceremony go back almost a thousand years to they were first used effectively verbatim uh, by William the Conqueror. So you, you've talked, you're talking about about a thousand year old ceremony done effectively the way it's been done for a millennium, which is pretty incredible. So, so back to your question, you know, how is a nice farm girl like me get into <laughs> history like this, right? Right. How did, how did Dorothy get into Oz, right? Yep. Well, yep. As I mentioned before the break, I got on this quest in this most amazing moment that has burned into my memory. So if reincarnation is real, I'm sure that I'll remember this through all my future lifetime. Because um, I was, at the time, I was engaged to Dr. Murray, and he uh, received uh, the word that his father, Ron Murray, who lived in Colorado, had died, and he had remarried some years before um and so richard didn't know his his uh, mother-in-law or whatever um but his he learned from her that that her husband richard's father had died and that she was sending a box kazoo type uh, she was sending richard a box which did arrive in the mail it was about two and a half feet by two and a half feet square it was a pretty big box pretty heavy and it arrived at our home in Pacific Grove, California, here in the Monterey Peninsula, where I still live. And 
um, in the box, she had told Richard by phone or letter in advance that there were going to be all the documents she could find that pertained to both his father and his father's father, Richard's grandfather. So this, this box came. And Richard really didn't know who he was. Not really. Until he opened the box. And what we learned, putting aside Richard's father, who is not the interesting party here, it's Richard's grandfather. Richard's grandfather was born in Dune, Scotland, in the heart of Perthshire, okay. not too far from Scone, which is where the Stone of Destiny originally resided in Scotland. And we'll get to that in a moment. So I'm going to put aside the rest of the story about Richard's grandfather, and we've already done a show on that, but it would be a tangent. The most important document in this box was a coronation program for Queen Victoria's successor. I think his name was Bertie. But anyway, Queen Victoria's successor. And this coronation program was beautiful. It was like it had been preserved perfectly for uh, at that point, that was 1992 or 93, mm-hmm. 93, I believe. So it had been preserved for almost 100 years in its original pristine uh, format. And um, it was like, if you can imagine, an eight and a half by 11 folded over vertically on heavy stock, white stock. And the front of it explained, of course, what it was, that it was the coronation program of Queen Victoria's success. And when you opened it up so that it was with a fold, vertical fold in the middle, um, it was a just very um, vertical, narrow, uh, two, two sheets together. And the very first paragraph in the upper left-hand corner with this beautiful, illuminated first letter, it said in words, it said in words that the authority and legitimacy of the king, in other words, the monarch, you can be a queen, but the authority and legitimacy of the monarch who is about to be crowned in this ceremony comes from the stone in the chair. Mm. And I, I did a double take because I did you, you mean the stone under the throne? That he will or she will sit in when they're being coronated. Correct. And we're going to see a photograph of that in just a moment when we go to my items. But the coronation program got me on this path because I did an incredible double take. (laughs) I handed it to Richard. I said, am I reading this right? And then he did a double take. And because we are told that the monarchs achieve their authority by the bloodline Right, right. And by by the uh, who went before them in this line that goes back to God knows who, that it has to do with the family line, the royal family bloodline. Said nothing about that. Zero zilch has to. Wait, do wait, 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 wait. Which means any commoner who somehow could get coronated on that stone would be automatically under this quote law king. No, no, um, no, and I need to slightly correct your opener on that. All right. There's a, there's a fundamental difference between the monarch or the king or queen of England and of the British Empire and, and, and of Great Britain. Okay, 
Great Britain means England plus Scotland, most, most fundamentally, but also Wales and also Northern Ireland, okay? And then in addition to that, there are the British, there are the Commonwealth countries. Right. Um, 50 or so, something like that. Um, Canada, New Zealand, and a bunch of small ones. Okay. Australia. But, yeah, well, Australia. No, that's not a small one at all. <laughs> um, but but those are those are the main ones. But of, but of all of those, the one that matters the most to the very concept of Great Britain is Scotland united with England. Okay, so so he could be he could he could become the king of England. You know, sitting on any stone in the garden. That isn't what matters. As you're going to see now from this history, the British royal family, ever since 1296, every single king and queen of England and then Great Britain, which then included Scotland with the unification of Britain and Scotland, every single monarch since 1296 has been crowned on what they believe is the real stone of destiny. And we're going to get into what that is. But the bottom line is that the stone of destiny, also known as the stone of scone, because it in Scotland, and it had a history we're going to get into before Scotland, but when it first came to Scotland in, as I recall, 800-something, the first king to be crowned on it was in 800-something at Scone Abbey uh, near Scone Palace in the heart of the Highlands in Perthshire, Scotland. But in 1296, the king of England, only the king of England then, that was Edward I. He was a very vicious king. And he was, um, he was known by the Scots as the hammer of the Scots because he was so brutal to them. And he sent his cavalry, his, you know, horse, horse army, uh, up to Scone Abbey and demanded the stone on which the Scottish kings, as kings, hmm. a little bit early. Go ahead. So no. in 1296, the King of England sent his army up to basically steal the Stone of Destiny on which Scottish kings had been crowned for many hundreds of years prior to that, at least 400 years. And the reason he wanted it was basically to, it would be like, uh, you know, it would be like uh, an army from Spain going into England and going into the Tower of London and taking the crown jewel. Um, it, it takes the symbols of authority uh, away from the existing rulers and sticks it to the Scots. So that's what, that's what Edward I did in 1296. However, and here's what's important, and everybody in Scotland knows this, and it's also part of the Scottish history, official history, that in 1296, the Bishop of Stone where all of these Scottish kings have been crowned on this stone, and we're going to get into why that stone was so important to crown the Scottish kings on them in a moment. But the Bishop of Stone learned that the cavalry of Edward I was coming, and he switched the stone. He took the real stone of destiny, which has this history way before the Scots, as we will see going all the way back to ancient Egypt, to the time almost certainly of Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their crown princess, Meritaten, 
who became known as Scota, after whom Scotland to this day is named. The word Scotland comes from an ancient queen, first, first crown princess and then queen of ancient Egypt. Okay, so in 1296, the Bishop of Scone switched the stones and gave a fake stone. But, you know, led the cavalry to believe that it was the real thing. The cavalry took it back to Edward I, who had the coronation chair that Charles was crowned on on the 9th of May. That's the very chair. It's called St. Edward's chair. And that chair was made. It's made of oak wood made in 1296, 1297, for a single purpose, to house that stone, which is directly under the seat, and was directly under the seat of the coronation chair for every single coronation from Edward II, who was the son of Edward I, after Edward I died, from Edward II all the way through Charles, that chair, Edward St. Edward's chair with the stone that they they think is the real stone of destiny right under the seat. There's a special compartment that it perfectly fits in that every single monarch has been crowned on that stone on the claim that their authority and legitimacy resides from the stone. And that is the authority and legitimacy of the monarch of Great Britain as opposed to just the king or queen of England. Ah. All right. So, so now so, we're going so this to, is a distinction with a difference. <laughs> yes, it's a very important difference. Thank you. We're talking about Great Britain, and many people will remember. I believe it was in 20, 2014, not that long ago, about nine years ago, um, going on ten, going on a decade. The um, the Scottish citizens, the Scottish voters, voted on an independence uh, referendum. And it didn't win. It, it only got about 45 to 55%. It didn't win, but they want to be independent. And especially since Brexit, Scotland voted 60, 65% to stay with the EU. And they're very, very upset that Brexit happened. So when Brexit happened, which was dictated from London, from Westminster, actually, um, where the parliament is also, um, where the coronations and the parliament are, uh, since Brexit was dictated from London, the Scots have more and more wanted to become independent, and at some point there will be another referendum. If there were a referendum for independence that was allowed to happen by Westminster, which is a big question, but if it were allowed to happen and Scotland became independent, fully independent, they're quasi-independent now, They've ever since Robert the Bruce uh, defeated Edward II at Bannockburn, Edward I's son, uh, I think that was 1314 in Scotland, at Bannockburn, Scotland, a, bat- a major battle. Scottish law and parliament have been independent of England, but they're not wholly independent of England. The hmm. Scots want to be fully independent. Okay, so, so the, the most important thing to know here is that the real stone never went down to be in the chair in Westminster. However, Edward I assumed that it was, and every king and queen... So wait, wait, you mean back then they didn't think of counterfeits, plots within plots, and one group lying to another? In other words, they, there was no way he could check 
test it? Well, that's a good question. Um, I didn't want to get off into uh, another tangent, but I guess I have to. We have three hours of tangents. Come on. Well, that's true. There's so much to cover. Um, But, yes, um, Edward Edward I did have his spies up in Scone, and he was informed that there had been a switch. And so Ah. it wasn't long before he sent even a bigger cavalry army up and demanded the real stone from the Bishop of Scone who refused refused. And in order to save face, apparently, the best that we know from history, in order to save face, um, he, his cavalry came back without another stone. And Edward I and II, all the way through Charles, they've always pretended that they had the real one, but they don't. And they haven't since 1296. So how so, many in the in crowd, if, if this is the legitimacy of the monarchy for Great Britain? Right. Why hasn't anybody like in Scotland blown the whistle and said, hey, oh, they you... have. Oh, they have. I could, I could. But that would delegitimize the whole idea of the, uh, of the, uh, uh, you know, the concept of Great Britain. Well, of course. Um, the, the, uh, some of the leaders, uh, in fact, the head of the Scottish National Party, Alex Salmond, who was head of the Scottish National Party to, uh, First ministers ago, before Nicola Sturgeon and before the current one, um, uh, he uh, came out, you know, in the uh, in the Scot the Scotsman or one of the major papers in Edinburgh, saying precisely that. Um, and I've actually got in one of my items uh, an article um, that was published in one of the major papers in England or Scotland or both, um, just uh, before the coronation, saying precisely that. Um, that it's you know it's 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 not a legitimate uh, it's not a, a legitimate claim to the throne of Scotland. Um, so maybe we should go through my items because I can go through them quickly and sure. it, Again, I, I put, we don't need I to put, do this quickly. We have plenty of time to give people a real three D picture of why this is important. Yeah, I know. I, I I hate to take up too much time with other guests on the show, but but I'll I'll, I'll yeah. Do, but the I'll other guests are going to be commenting mostly on what you've unearthed, and that's okay. No, all, right. So. all right. Okay. So um, and by the way, Robert Morningstar um, recently did a two-hour interview with me in even more detail than we'll probably be able to go in here, and um, I have asked that the link to that Rumble uh, video. Uh, be added to my items. I, I asked Keith to do that, so hopefully that will be I will will be um, my item one or one A pretty soon added to it. Okay, so if everybody goes to Barbara's items, and you want to tell people how to do that? Or? Yeah, you go on the internet if you're listening. You go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our website. Click on tonight's banner, which has that elegant portrait of Charles. That will take you to the guest page. <clears throat> Under the guest page, you will find fast links to items click on barbara's name that will take you to her items so when you see barbara's barbara's items i want you to look first at number two then we'll go back to number one so number two this is a photograph inside westminster abbey which is the big cathedral there where the coronation took place on the 9th of may on saturday the 9th of may just passed and you're going to see there's St. Edward's chair. That's the coronation chair. It's been used ever since 1296. Actually, it was first used for the coronation of Edward II, Edward I's son, a few years after 
after 1296, not shortly after 1296, it was first used. And if you see in that chair, um, there's the seat of the chair, and then right under the seat of the chair, there is an open area. To the right of the chair in the photograph, you will see what they claim is the real stone of destiny. Now, of course, it's this substituted fake one. Now, what's very interesting <laughs> is that in in 1996, um, November 30th, as I recall anyway, November of 1996, believe it or not, under an order by Queen Elizabeth II, recent queen, she ordered that the Stone of Destiny be returned to Scotland for the first time since 1296. And it was, and we're going to see in a few um, in a few photos down below, we're going to see the return of the stone back in 1996 to Scotland. But the point here is, is that that stone that, that Charles claims is the real one and that the British royal family claims is the real stone of destiny, the stone of Skoda, um, that was, there was a big procession up to Edinburgh Castle where it was then returned to Westminster to be stuck in under the seat of the chair just for the coronation, and now it's back in Scotland. There was a treaty that was made between the Scottish National Party and the Scots in general and the Crown back before 1996 that the Queen would allow the stone to be permanently back in Scotland as long as the Scots agreed, and they did at that time, that whenever there was a coronation, that the stone would be temporarily returned to Westminster to be stuck under the seat of St. Edward's chair and then sent back to Scotland, which it has been. Okay, so, so you can see that stone there waiting to be put in the chair for the coronation. All right, so now go up to my 1A. And <clears throat> um, you're, you're, you're seeing part of the ceremony of the return of the stone from Scotland back to uh, Westminster Abbey, Westminster Cathedral. And uh, those are, that's very interesting. Those two guards on either side of the main guard uh, in front of the substituted fake stone, um, they are wearing uh, a jerkin, uh, which is uh, effectively the, um, the, the flag of union of the four parts of Great Britain. And those four parts are England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Okay, so this is a big deal. It's, it's what I'm telling you. Number three, I'm not gonna be able to go into the details that everybody needs to read this article. <clears throat> there is overwhelming, compelling proof that this is not the real stone of destiny that um, Edward I sent his cavalry up to get from Scone Abbey in 1296. There are many lines of physical proof, but this is just one of them. You read this article. Um, another physical line of proof is that the one that he was crowned on the other day that's in uh, photo 1A above, or photo, um, two, uh, yeah, photo two uh, above, um, that stone uh, has been um, the fake one, the substituted one. That stone has been carefully analyzed 
And it is, there's no question, but that it is simply sandstone from a quarry in the area of Scone. Uh, mm. Okay. So because the original stone came from, we can infer, and we'll get to that, uh, came from Egypt with Princess Skoda and Queen Skoda of ancient Egypt. Um, obviously, that's yet another line. But <clears throat> amazingly, number three is that um, back in um, a number of years ago, in a peat bog, and the amazing thing is that peat um, uh, can preserve uh, can preserve wood. Uh, that kind of surprised me. But anyway, there was a... And, and it can preserve bodies. And bodies, yes, right. So there was a box that was found. And in the box uh, was an object on which there was carved uh, the image of the stone back in the 500s, the 500s of the real stone. And it looks nothing like what you're looking at on the left, which is, of course, uh, the substituted fake stone. Okay, so there are many, many lines of evidence. And the Knights Templar, by the way, in Scotland, I was told in person by the number three officer of the Scottish National Party back in July of 1994 in his home in Scotland over Scotch, I was told that the Knights Templars still have the real stone and that they will bring out the real stone once Scotland achieves her full independence, which could be very soon. All right, number four. Now, this is this just has uh, – Yeah, we've got about 30 seconds, so why don't okay. we wait, okay? okay. This All is right. actually – I mean, I have obviously a thousand questions, but I didn't want to – interrupt um so i'll save them until we come back this is absolutely fascinating barbara's leading us through the foundation background for the legitimacy of the current monarch of the british empire the concept of great britain apart from the concept of the king of england you're on the other side of midnight my name is richard c hoagland and again this is uh the King Shall Rejoice by William Boyce, music from the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com.
And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday evening, May 21st. We're kind of taking a deep dive into the background of the coronation of King Charles III, King of England and Great Britain, and head of, of course, the British Commonwealth, which is a separate legal entity, as Barbara described. Barbara, please continue. Okay, so number four in my items, this is where we're jumping around in time quite a bit here, um, from 1296 up to the present, to the past, uh, this month, May 9th. So it turns out that, um, and this is not surprising to me, having been in London and Scotland, I, I, I have my second residence in Scotland, so I've been there quite a bit. <clears throat> I understand how the people feel. But this is also true in England now um, and throughout the U.K., and that is that very, very few people cared about the coronation. You know, I saw those polls and I was stunned yeah. because of all the hype and the pageantry and the BBC and Channel 4 and the, you know, the whole Diane and uh, you know, Charles and then Meghan and Harry. In other words, you would have thought from over here that the monarchy, the royal family, was a central obsession of the, of the British people. And it turns out that most of them don't give a damn. No, they don't. They don't give a damn. And a growing percentage of them want to end the monarchy, including these people who are holding up these signs, not my king. Um, this is in one of the, the organizations that had printed. Now, these were hand done. This is before the coronation. But on the coronation day, they had 600 um, professionally printed huge placards like that. And they were arrested before they could take them out of the van and actually do their demonstration, which they'd gotten uh, permission to do, um, so that Charles wouldn't be able to see a single sign that said, not my king, while he rode in his, you know, golden carriage down uh, to, to Westminster Abbey. So according to the most recent poll, the, the poll just before the coronation, only about 9% of British citizens, and by that it means, it basically means... Um, the you know Great Britain, including Scotland, um, only about nine ten percent cared at all. Sixty four sixty four percent didn't care at all or don't care very much. And there's also another fascinating statistic, and that is because the coronations happen in Westminster, which is the the central cathedral or abbey uh, of the Church of England. Um, in the United States, the closest to that is the Episcopal Church. Um, it's basically the same church. started out that way. Um, the Church of England, there was a poll at least, at least 15 years ago that I read. Uh, only 2% uh, of the British public uh, attend the Church of England or care at all about it. 2%. Um, and so to get up to 9%, of people who care about the coronation even, which happened in the main cathedral of the Church of England, it's only because it's a great show. I mean, it's the greatest soap opera on the earth, you know, and people love the pageantry. That's why they went, in my opinion. Wow. So that's number four. Um, Number five is just simply backgrounds for people who don't really know very much about the history of coronations of British monarchs, and that's just a, a short video overview, and we don't have to go into that was that was put out uh, put out by I think the BBC or no ITV 
which is one of their main television channels there in London uh, before the coronation. Okay, now number six is very interesting and important. So what you're looking at here, you're looking at a small, a small um, mausoleum, I guess you would call it, at what is today Scone Palace, uh, which is the same square acre approximately where Scone Abbey was back in 1296 when Edward I sent his cavalry up to take what he thought was the real stone of destiny back to Westminster. But this is where, that is the precise place where up until 1296, the real stone sat upon those two little pedestals. And I have just about almost exactly a year ago in June of last year, I sat upon that stone and have a photograph of myself taken on it. <laughs> it was pouring rain. And so I'm in, I'm uh, in my rain gear and you can barely see my face because of the, you know, the headgear. But anyway, um, those little tiles underneath the stone seat, of course, that is that is uh, also a substitute uh, representation of the real stone. Um, but that is the precise location where the kings of Scotland were crowned. It's called Boot Hill, B-O-O-T. And the reason it's called Boot Hill, it doesn't look like a hill, but it is. A, it is. You have to walk up. Oh, I don't know, about 15 feet from the flat to get up to that little seat. You can't tell from this photograph that it's a little hill. It's a hillock is a better word. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that it was called Boot Hill, fascinating history, is that the Scots were, were basically warring. You know, these, these clans warred with each other. And before Scotland was unified, they would war with each other. And the way that they got them to stop warring as much with each other. Uh, Barbara, excuse me. Is someone typing? I'm hearing typing. Not me. No, I said someone. If you're typing, please mute. Hmm. Go ahead. Okay. Um, so so what, the reason it's called Booth Hill is because all of the different kind of mini kings, if you will, uh, of the regions of Scotland, uh, what they would get together to elect their king, the king of kings, if, if you will, and each one of them would fill their boot, part, part of their boot, under their foot, under their sole of their foot, uh, with soil from their part of Scotland. Oh. And they would, for the coronation, they would, they would all come together to this little place, and they would empty the soil from all over Scotland, and then they would mix it all up right around this little stone. Oh, my gosh. It's a, it's a wonderful concept. Well, it's, it's really very reminiscent of Silbury Hill, which was built, and Maria, of course, can fill us in. Uh, we're told by the archaeologists, uh, British archaeologists, that Silbury Hill was built of, you know, hundreds or thousands of peasants laboring for years to bring little buckets of soil from somewhere else to pile up to make the, the mound called Silbury Hill, which covers, I think there's a pyramid inside, I think. Uh, so the so the tradition is very 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 old. It's very interesting. Well, this was the tradition in Scotland, um, and it worked because the the many kings, if you will, they elected 
um, the King of Kings of Scotland, who was then crowned, sitting on the soil of all of Scotland, if you will, on top of the stone. And that's the very place that Edward I's army came up, his cavalry, and, and uh, took what he thought. Uh, initially was the real stone, but it was in fact a substitute. Well, they must have had warning then that he was going to come and try to steal it, and they just gave him a fake. Yes, well, I said that earlier in this very program. Yeah, just, just so they had to have Friar intelligence. It wasn't like a last-minute decision. They knew they had to keep the real one and give him the fake one. I just wonder why there was no test. You know, that's that's amazing to me. No well, test. I don't think they had the ability to test back then like we do now. Um, you know, our scientific tests that have now been done that has proved definitively that the stone that Charles was just crowned on um, was simply from a quarry around Scott. And if, as you will see... Mm-hmm. If the Scots still have the real stone... They do. We know what it's made of, right? Is it limestone? Well, that's a good question. I wasn't told that. Because if, if it's limestone, there are ways you can use just ordinary optical means to tell the difference between this stone and that stone or this type of stone and that type of stone. So, you know, there were some things that Edward could have done to make sure he got the real one. Uh, he would have to know what the real one looked like. Right. He didn't. And certainly, you know, his, his cavalry, I don't think, did. <laughs> they just they just took the word of the Bishop of Scone wow. the first time they went up there. Um, but he did have intelligence. Both of them had intelligence. The bishop had intelligence that the army was coming. It's kind of hard to to uh, hide a huge army of all of these horses. You know? <laughs> yep. um, so he knew they were coming, and he, and he substituted the stone. Okay, now when you go to number seven... Um, I actually meant to put number seven at the very top and number one, but this is the St. Edward's chair before the stone, which you can more clearly see under the seat, as it was when Charles was crowned on May 9th. Again, this is before the stone was returned on the order, the edict of Queen Elizabeth on November 30th of 1996, back to Edinburgh Castle to be together with the with the other um, crown jewels called the Honors of Scotland. Number eight, you can see there's there's, uh, St. Edward's chair again uh, with a stone in it, and that's the coronation of Queen Elizabeth in 1953. Um, Now, number nine, I love number nine, because as I mentioned, on November 30th, 1996, due to the edict of Queen Elizabeth, that um, the stone, alleged real stone, but actually the substitute, was returned. It was a really big deal. It was a treaty between Scotland and England. Um, and this this um, document is being held up here. This is now, the stone is now for the first time back in Scotland. It's in Edinburgh Castle in this photograph on November 30th, 1996, returned there by Prince Andrew, who is on the right. Okay. Uh, and that's where you will see it today if you were to go to scotland it's now been returned i'm sure to scotland and um when but I this is not the real stone no it's not the real stone see what i don't get barbara is given that this is the foundation of an entire you know monarchy an entire kingdom an entire nation state for a thousand, a thousand years how come they everybody's going along with this charade well there's a good reason and the good reason is, and that's part of the history that we'll get to at the end of my items, it gets complicated, as they say, <laughs> complicated. But 
there's an answer, a very simple answer to the question, actually. And that is that in, I believe it was 1707, there was a treaty between Scotland and England called the Treaty of Union. And, you know, treaties are the highest law of the land in the U.S. Constitution here and also over there. And from, from 1707 on, the... Um, the Scots have agreed to be part of Great Britain, okay? Mm -hmm. So they're trying to have another referendum to undo the Treaty of Union in the very near future again. They had one in 2014, didn't work. Um, Now there are more people uh, who want it, and so we'll see what's going to happen. But so in 1707, there was an official union. And the other major answer to the question is that Queen Elizabeth I died without having any heir. Mm. She didn't have any children, as I recall, not even a female. Um, but she didn't have an heir. And so Mary, Mary Queen of Scots' son, James I of Scotland, independent king of Scotland, who then also became James VI of England, mm. was a Scottish-born king who became king of both. Mm. Okay. And that was after the Treaty of Union. Okay. Or no, it was before the Treaty of Union, actually. The Treaty of Union happened after that. But there, there are complicated reasons. If James I and the VI of Scotland and England hadn't been Scottish-born, who became king of Great Britain, um, probably the Scots would have stuck it to the Brits and brought out the real stone already. But there are reasons. Okay. But as I said, the Knights Templars have the real stone, and they told me to my face over scotch. Uh, <laughs> in uh, 1994, um, the, the Lord High Provost of Perthshire and Kinross, and Perthshire is where Scone Palace and Scone Abbey are, or Scone Abbey was, and where Boot Hill is, he was the Scottish National Party representative from where Scone Palace is. Yeah, Maria just sent us a note. She said it's James I of England and James VI of Scotland. Oh, she is absolutely correct. My mistake. Thank you so much, Maria. You know, absolutely, of course. It was that's, James that's why I have a multi-genius panel. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. No, she's absolutely correct. James, James VI, obviously, of Scotland, because there had been many Jameses right. uh, as marks before. See, again, but, I'm, I'm still, I may be dull and maybe slow tonight, but I don't understand why if the stone is central to the to the connection between the monarchy and god the deity the only reason you know divine right of kings and queens why we let kings and queens rule ordinary people again you know in the literature why this charade has been going on and on and on when everybody knows it looks like that it's a fake no everybody doesn't know that's why i'm doing what i'm doing Everybody doesn't know. Yeah, but I don't mean here. I mean in England and Great Britain where it counts. The Scots know it. Yeah. The, the, peop- the, the Scots who are in favor of independence know it. And as you'll see, it's been in the papers before the coronation. They know it. The Templars are ready to bring out the real stone when Scotland becomes independent. They're very adamant about that. They won't do it until. Okay. So you're going to have to talk to some nice But doesn't gentleman. that then mean that legally Charles is only king of England, period? Well, and, and Wales and uh, Northern Ireland. Yeah, but that's the Great Britain part that you said was, was abrogated if it's not a real stone. 
Technically, I don't believe so. As I said, the stone represents the union between Scotland and England. Okay. Okay? So if you take the stone away, or if, if the whole world suddenly realized that it, it was, isn't the real stone and the importance of the real stone, it would simply mean that, that by their own belief system in the coronation program that I held in my hands from the coronation ceremony of Queen Victoria's successor, King. They themselves believe that their authority comes from the stone. But they're not telling people that. They know it isn't real. You think they're going to delegitimize themselves in public? Mm. That's what I'm doing. Mm. Okay. Oh, what a tangled now, web we weave. When yeah, first we practice you know, to deceive. It is going to happen. It's just a question. Of which what. only goes to show we need more practice. Yeah. So number 10, uh, you're looking at the, the, they're called the honors of Scotland. Those are the sword, the scepter, the fake stone. They're still going along with the charade. Um, this is in Edinburgh Castle in the room called the honors of Scotland and the crown. Uh, those are the actual honors of Scotland or the crown jewels, if you will, in the crown, um, of, on which um, uh, the actual Scottish uh, monarchs were crowned uh, in the past. But again, King Edward the, the first in 1296 took what he thought was the real stone. Number 11, this book, I highly recommend it. If you want to know a lot about the Stone of Destiny, this is the most important book that I found to read, and it's called The Search for the Stone of Destiny. I've added the word real. Um, this is a whole book um, telling you why we know that the one in the coronation chair in Westminster isn't the real one. And all the places that the real one has been, starting in ancient Egypt, we're going to get to that. Um, number 12 is simply, I put in, uh, in text here, um, my personal experience with the Lord High Provost of Kinroth and Perthshire, who told me personally, he was a member of the Knights Templars, that they have had the real stone since 1296 and that they still have it. And at that time, it was in Aberdeen, Scotland, but it's moved around to keep it, uh, to keep it safe. Um, this is also a critically important book, number 13, Kingdom of the Ark. Now we're going to get into why would the Scottish kings and Maybe there was a queen. I don't know. You know, uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, wanted to be uh, Queen of England, but uh, didn't work out. Um, but anyway, um, the, the big question to me, once I realized that the that the kings and queens of England since 1296 have believed their authority to rule over Scotland as well as England, comes from this stone, assuming it was the real one, which they which they told everybody still. Um, why do they think that their authority came from a piece of rock? <laughs> and that's the big question. That's the big question. So this is the book that starts to seriously answer that question. And it's by Lorraine Evans, and I believe maybe Maria can correct me. I'm pretty sure she's uh, a, a British citizen, a member of the, you know, a citizen of the UK. Is she, um, is she still with us? I believe she is. Um, I believe she is, but I'm not certain. Um, but what you learn in this book, it goes into the the, um, the ancient history of the stones having come from uh, ancient Egypt uh, and being been carried by uh, a princess, depending upon 
some of the histories of princess, others a queen. Um, from my own research, it was Meritaten, who was the eldest daughter of um, Akhenaten and uh, Nefertiti. Ah. And we're talking about the mid-1300 B.C. Right. Uh, in Egypt. And um, Meritaten was the um, her Egyptian name. She was like the crown princess. He had no sons or no living sons. And by the way, King Tut was, according to the best uh, genetic analysis, uh, King Tut was the half-sibling of Queen uh, Princess and Queen Skoda, Meritot and Skoda. So somehow she got a Celtic name, Skoda. And what happened was is she uh, left uh, Egypt uh, during, presumably during the reign of Akhenaten or perhaps right afterwards. There's some evidence that Meritaten became actual queen of, uh, of Egypt for about two years before she disappears from history. But this book takes up uh, after she disappeared from history back in Egypt and that um, with a large retinue of ships and servants um, that she left with the stone, whatever the stone was that was so important uh, in ancient Egypt, she left with it in her ship and um, her ship ended up uh, in Ireland. And she had at least two sons and she died in battle there. And you can go to Scotus Grave in Scotland, excuse me, in Ireland today. It's near Tralee, uh, near the west coast of, kind of the southwest coast of Ireland. And uh, you can go to Scotus Grave. It's a big deal. Um, the Scots and the Irish make a big deal about Scota. Very few people know about it. Hmm. And Scotland is named after Scota and her stone. Do we know okay. the meaning of the term Scota, the name Scota? You know, that's a really good question. All I know is that her people were called the Scoti. The Scoti. It's got to be and, important then. Yeah, it's got to be very important. I don't know the answer to that, but seeing as you maybe asked, Maria that, can in the breaks. Uh, maybe Mar <laughs> Maria. <laughs> yeah, I did that before. Okay, we're we're getting to the end here because because this gets to the question of why is this stone so important? Well, I'm going to jump to my conclusion and then go through the rest of these items because you kind of need to know where I'm going. It is an it is a highly informed inference from all of my research that the reason that the stone was considered so important by the Scots and then by Edward I and by all the monarchs of Great Britain since 1296 is because it was the coronation stone of the pharaohs, including Akhenaten. And that Skota took the stone with her to keep it away from the Amun priesthood who overturned. Aha, so it was part of the whole <clears throat> uh, uh, Egyptian radical revolution. Well, we don't know that. Um, probably. Between Akhenaten and the priesthood and all that, his family, you know, the kingdom that he, oh, the, kingdom, the, the capital city he set up that was razed to the ground. Contradiction right. in terms. Right, Amarna. I've been to Amarna. Yeah, Amar yeah. Uh, we, we, we don't know. By inference, by informed inference, I will tell you that I'm pretty sure that that was the coronation stone long before Akhenaten. Because don't forget, it's the priests who told Akhenaten that his 
and, the, and told the pharaohs that the pharaoh who is being crowned, um, that their authority came from the stone. And I could go into, it was called Mat Stone, M-A-A-T, the goddess Mat. And the, the pharaoh had to keep the, I think it was the 43 laws of Mat. And believe it or not, every single year, the priesthood had to reconfirm the pharaoh the pharaoh had to say, yes, I've kept this law. Yes, I've done this. Yes, I've done this. No, I haven't done that awful thing. And he had to be Well, Mott is, Mott, Mott is even-handed justice, I believe, in addition. It's truth and justice. Truth and justice yeah. and righteousness. Okay. Yeah. So, but, by the way, Robert, Robert is on the ball. He just uh, sent me a note. Scotia is, means she knows. Oh, she well, knows. Do. So what did she know? The real meaning of the stone. Well, that's very interesting. Scotia means, I'd like to know from Robert what language that would be in. Would that be Celtic? Um, that would make sense because uh, Mop Stone. That's in Irish. That's, Mop, in Irish. Ancient uh, Irish, okay. Yeah, Celtic. So um, she who knows. So this is this is the the Sophia wisdom. Yeah. Um, this is the gnosis, the direct knowing um, from the Godhead or the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I I just so get I, a gestalt that the she knows is bigger than small stuff. It's like she knows the idea of kingship was lowered from heaven. Well, yes, and that's why the goddess Maud is so important because the goddess. In the original stone, the I think it was 43 or 42 laws of Mott, um, the symbols of them were carved around the, the side of the stone. And the pharaoh had to be crowned with bare feet, not even sandals, with his soles resting on that. And so what he was doing, it was like taking the oath to the Constitution of the United States, you know, when the president does it. It is an oath to uphold the laws of Mott. And that, in other words, the Pharaoh was supposed to live the law and be the example for his people. That's where the idea comes from. Um, number, oh, number 14, this is fun. Um, on the left is uh, Akhenaten and his beautiful queen, Nefertiti. Again, this is the mid-1350s BC in ancient Egypt. Um, and that is Skota. Her Egyptian name was Meritaten. Now, I do want to be clear that there are other historians who uh, claim that it was a different Egyptian queen, a slightly different time. I disagree, but I refer you back to Lorraine Evans' book um, that, that was mentioned above, Kingdom of the Ark. Okay. Just do that for yourself. we got about okay. 45 seconds in this okay. segment. All right. The last one before, um, before the break, and then it'll only be about five minutes after the break. Number 15, Uri Geller, believe it or not, is really into Skoda and the real stone. Oh, really? And he bought Skoda's island. What? How could he buy her he island? It. it went up for sale. He bought it. <laughs> I would think it would be a, be beyond price given its history. Uh, I think it cost something like sixty thousand pounds at the time. Not that much. That's I mean, all. You can't do anything on it. Yeah, but you can become, you can go to his website, you can become a citizen of Scotus Island, and I would become a citizen of Scotus Island. She who knows Island. I think there's a television show there. Hey, we're at the uh, uh, bottom of the hour, so hold it there. My guest this morning is Barbara Honiger. 
We have all kinds of other very interesting folks waiting in the wings. Uh, we'll bring them on when uh, Barbara kind of gets to a pause point in this fascinating presentation. The idea that a stone, maybe even a stone not of this world, and we'll talk about what we mean by that, is at the root of the British monarchy, the foundation of its legitimacy, and it's all in the in crowd. Everybody knows they're all lying to each other about the real stone, but they don't give a damn because in politics, perception is 99% point, 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 the law. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. This is a uh, Gloria from Mass for Four Voices by William Byrd, the music of the coronation of King Charles. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this uh, Sunday evening, about half an hour from Monday here in the Land of Enchantment. We're listening to a backgrounder from Barbara Honiger in the extraordinarily intriguing history of the legal foundations of a relationship between the king or queen of England and the, the country of Scotland, Queen Scotia, a migration from Egypt connection to Akhenaten by way of uh, uh, heredity, and who knows how long before. And as we're, I said at the top, we're playing some uh, great music tonight from music particularly chosen for the coronation, Charles III. 
Anyway, Barbara, please continue. Okay, and, and um, I think I can more or less rush through these. So don't rush, 16, don't rush, don't rush, don't no, rush. Okay. We've got plenty of time. 16, 17, 18, and 19 are all related. So um, 16 is a book called The Stone of Destiny by Ian Hamilton. Now, there's this amazing piece of history in 1950 on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. I think it was, I think it was Christmas Eve, like the night before Christmas. <laughs> After Westminster Abbey, the big cathedral where Charles was just crowned on May 9th. After, um, after it closed down, um, there were four students who were rabid Scottish independent activists who Effectively, you can't steal something that was already stolen from you. Nope. But, so they liberated the stone out of Westminster Abbey in the middle of the night and got it into actually, if they, um, one of one or two of them hid inside the abbey, um, and um, then the night guard did his rounds and he disappeared, and they managed to get the stone out of the chair as it fell out of the chair. Uh, a corner of it broke off, and so they put the corner in one in the boot of one car, and they put the big stone, uh, the, the major part of the stone, in the boot of another car. And after hiding it, um, the the little piece went over the border to Scotland right away. And the big stone, you're going to love this piece of history. The big stone, they had to hide it that night, and so they they just drove around in the dark. Until they kind of felt guided, as you know, maybe by Skoda, she who knows. Mm. Um, they felt guided to stop the car and walk into this kind of uh, field where there were some trees and to bury it. Well, um, then they went and slept, and they went back the next night or a couple of nights later to retrieve it and go. You know, when the heat had died, died down, because the uh, the gendarmes were looking. For the stone all, all over. Of course, yes. At that point. And, and this is back in 1950 now. 1950. Uh, 19.5. Yeah, not, good point. Not an accident. Come on. So you're going to love this. When they went back to get the stone a night or two later. And this is all in the book, The Stone of Destiny, and in these audio and videotapes that are the next three items after number 16, 16, 17, 18, and 19. It's all about Ian Hamilton, who was the lead of the four students. There were three young male students and one uh, female student. Wow. And the female student got the little piece of stone, got it over the border quickly, and the men, um, two of the men... Um, got the um, stone into the back of the car and buried it. And then a night or two later, they went back. And guess what? There were gypsies who had a fire right right next to the stone. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, what is gypsy? It comes from the word Egypt. Of course. <laughs> Egypt. They were Egyptian uh, bloodline guarding the stone and these two young men got out of the car and they realized well if we were going to get the stone back we're going to have to go talk to these uh, egyptians <laughs> and they did and they joined their circle around the fire and they explained to them that they were radicals um, that they wanted scottish independence 
and the uh, gypsies agreed with them, and they helped them bury the stone and get it back in their car. And they got it back uh, over the border into Scotland. Why hasn't anybody made a movie about this? Well, they have, and we're getting to that. Oh, okay, okay, okay. The movie is number 20. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so, so they got it back over the border. Now, the important thing to know about this story, uh, and these are number 18 is, is an interview. Uh, uh, I think this is audio only. It might be video. No, it's, it's video uh, of Ian Hamilton when he was an older man. Um, and then number 19 is Ian Hamilton's son who was incensed that the stone was being returned to Westminster for, for Charles' coronation. And he went public with this, uh, with the BBC. So that's number, just before the coronation, that's number 19. Right. So I believe these people in Scotland know about this. But the important thing that happened when these brilliant Scottish Glasgow University students liberated the stone that had been originally stolen by the evil British king Edward I in 1296, um, the amazing thing is that when the crown found out and the king himself got a call in the middle of the night when the, um, when the guard in Westminster found that the stone was missing from the chair, he called the prime minister who immediately woke the king in the middle of the night. This is in 1950 now. 1950, Christmas Day. And the king panicked. The huh. whole country panicked. Well, yeah. <laughs> now you have to ask yourself, if this is just a heap of rock, yep. why yep. would the country panic? But they did. And a big friggin' deal was made about it. And I happen to know, because of my meeting in number 12 with, um, with Alexander Murray III, who was then the Lord High Provost of Kinroth and Perthshire, that was on my honeymoon, in uh, July of 1994, in his living room in Scotland, over Scotch, he not only told me that the Knights Templars have the real one, and they have ever since it was swapped back in 1296, but he also told me that um, when, I think I mentioned this before, that when Scotland becomes independent, they will bring it out. But the other thing that he told me was that when the students got both pieces of the stone back over the border. And then they gave it to a guy who put them together and glued them together and all of that. Um, but that's an aside. When they got them back over the border and the King of England panicked and the crown panicked and, you know, everybody panicked um, because they had to get it back for the real reason that they know that their legitimacy is founded upon it. Um, and that too many people really know. Politics, 99% perception. Yeah. Exactly, 99.99999. And so what happened was um, uh, Alexander Murray III, my husband was Richard Murray, so they were related. Um, Alexander Murray III, um, the number three officer then, he told us, in the Scottish National Party, the SNP, which is in power now in Scotland and has been for about a decade. Um, he He told us, that after the crown and the king, when I say the crown, I mean, you know, the, the royal family. Right, right. Uh, and all of the servants around the king. When the king and the crown panicked, they, 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 um, Alexander Murray and the Knights Templars sent a very quiet message to the crown that they had the stone. And that. The real one. That they, no, that they had the stolen, the so-called 
Oh, you, you mean the fake one that was pretending to be the real one that was transported? Correct. Okay. See, this is getting very con- – it's like three-card well, Monty on a two-continent scale. Well, but the, the Crown already knows that the, some Knights Templars have the real one. Yeah. But they didn't know who had the, ah, the, okay. the fake one. Okay. So, so the Knights Templars let the Crown know that they had the liberated stone and it was safely in Scotland. And that the, um, the Knights Templars uh, cut a very secret agreement with the Crown that with a delay to save face. Another treaty. That they would return, without saying fake stone, but they would return. They would the return the fake stone, pretending it was a real stone. Oh, yes, good. they would return it. They would they would take it to Aberth Abbey, which is where it's a very important historical place in Scotland. It has to do with the independence of Scotland, and that's why they that's why they chose it with Robert Bruce at Bannockburn. After Bannockburn, so the Treaty of Aberth was very very critical. To Scottish independence and Robert Robert the Bruce, so they they did they did after the latest safe face for both the crown and the four students, and the crown had to agree not to sue the students and just to let the whole thing drop. And part of that secret agreement, which presumably is in writing, um, that the Scottish National Party and or the Knights Templars have with a you know seal of the crown on it, mm. so that that agreement also says that on the seven hundredth anniversary to the date of the theft of the stone that it will be returned in perpetuity to Scotland which it was and that was on November 30th of 1996 okay so this is all very real number 20 is the Stone of Destiny movie it was made ah the movie the movie okay and it is very real to the actual story. So if you were to read Ian Hamilton's book, The Stone of Destiny, which is by the guy who led the four students and did it, um, he was the one who, uh, you know, loved the, 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 the main heavy part of the stone, which I think, I think, you know, something like 350 pounds. It and looks it's very, like it's heavy, yeah. It's very heavy and got it out to the boot of the car. Um, and so the movie, The Stone of Destiny, um, I can't remember exactly when it came out, but, but it is a very realistic portrayal of what actually happened, and it's a wonderful story. And you will see in there the reenactment of how the crown panicked, and they actually have embedded newsreels from the time of how the crown panicked. Oh, my. <laughs> okay. Um, number 21, Bannockburn. The Battle of Bannockburn was critically important. First, we had William Wallace, who was Braveheart, and he was unfortunately defeated uh, by the British king. And um, he was uh, not only beheaded, but, but quartered and, you know, impaled on the stake back in London. Um, but uh, his mantle was taken by Robert the Bruce, and Robert the Bruce defeated Edward I's son, Edward II, who was nothing like his father. He was a basically inept uh, king. And he was defeated at Bannockburn in, I believe it was, uh, yeah, tw- uh, mm, I have 2014. That should have, that's of course June 24th. It shouldn't be, shouldn't be, um, shouldn't be 2014, of course. It should have been 12, uh, 1314. So that needs to be corrected. June 24th. Uh, my screen says 1314. Refresh. Oh, good. It, okay, may, good. it may have been corrected because mine reads right. Oh, good. Well, and I just have to number 21, right? 
no. Uh, oh, no. No, yeah, 21 is correct. 22 should be corrected. Ah, to June okay, 24, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, 13, 14. That should be, yeah, 13, 14. So in this miraculous battle at Bannockburn, with between a quarter and a third of the number of of soldiers and cavalry and horses and, and weapons, um, that the King of Scotland, Robert the Bruce, actually defeated the army of uh, Edward I's son, Edward II. And from the time of the victory at Bannockburn, with the treaty afterwards uh, with Edward II, that uh, Scottish law has been independent of English law ever since, ever since to this day. Okay. Um, number 24, a wonderful book, The Holy Land of Scotland. 24, 23. Well, I skipped 23, but oh, that's, okay, okay. That's, that's a statue where I was just a year ago again. In the background, you have the monument to William Wallace, uh, Braveheart, and that is in the foreground is the statue of King Robert the Bruce, who defeated uh, Edward II at Bannockburn in 1314. St. John the Baptist uh, Day, by the way, tribute day. Um, on, the t- on number 24, the Holy Land of Scotland, this book, Jesus' statements, the, the claims, I don't know if they're true, Jesus in Scotland and the Gospel of the Grail. I think probably um, uh, both Maria and uh, Georgia will probably have something to say about that if they've read that book. Uh, number 25, the Scots who made America. The, the, the history of Scotland and the independence from England uh, and their, their, their rabid independence streak uh, is really what made America. Um, the Scots who made America, there are many books like this. Um, and number 26 is simply a previous program we did on this, but not nearly in the detail we're doing now. And the last two, number 27, um, this is um, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, as I mentioned. One of the reasons that the Scots to this day have still gone along with the ruse that the uh, stone that was that Charles was crowned on is and the all real one. was the real one that they've still gone along with it since uh, at least 1707 with the treaty of union between Scotland and Ireland. It's because, as I mentioned, Mary queen of Scots son, even though Elizabeth beheaded Mary queen of Scots, um, because she was told that Mary queen of Scots, that there was a conspiracy to remove her to the throne right. and put, on the throne, it turns out that that is false, and we'll, that's my last item, number 28. Um, there's recently been an unearthed letter um, between Mary and Elizabeth proving that that is false. Um, and unfortunately, uh, Elizabeth believed it, and she had her uh, her cousin uh, beheaded. But Mary, Queen of Scots, did have an issue, and that was James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England as well, with the union of the two crowns in a single person who happened to be born, a Scotsman. And that's one of the reasons, I believe, this is my informed opinion, that um, the politician Scots have gone along with the ruse uh, all of these centuries. However, the people, and especially the Knights Templars uh, and the Scottish Independence Party and the um, the growing movement for independence in Scotland, they, of course, know better. 
Um, so, oh, no, there is one other. Uh, well, there's the, the 29 note from Georgia about Washington. Yeah, the last one is it's an, a note from a previous show, um, and that was um, the, uh, about two years ago exactly. Wow. Um, Georgia let us know um, this amazing fact, which I have forgotten, um, and maybe she'll want to um, to elaborate on this when she comes on. But Georgia's, Georgia noted that Talk about the connection between the Knights Templars and Scotland. Um, um, Bonnie Prince Charlie, of course, in 1745, I believe it was, there was this uprising by the Scots, which was viciously defeated by the English king at the time. I think that was at Culloden. And the, um, the Scots were put down in a ruthless way for a very long time until, interestingly, Queen Victoria, who loved all things Scotland, and, and put them back, um, you know, and honored them again, finally, um, but not until Queen Victoria. But it turns out that when the Revolutionary War was won against King George III, that the first um, presidency of the United States was offered to Bonnie Prince Charlie. Hmm. And he turned because he was basically a little twit, and he wanted his luxuries in in Paris. And by the way, he's uh, he's buried in in the in the Vatican. Um, so he's of course Catholic, which is a big deal between uh, Scotland used to be Catholic, and uh, beginning with James, um, beginning with James, Scotland became Protestant as well as England. And if you notice. In the coronation ceremony of Charles on May 9th of this year, that in fact it's the oath that he officially took. Actually, it was, it was May 6th, I believe. Hmm? I think it was May 6th. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, you're correct. I've been mis- misspoken. Well, that, you know, he turned it upside down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're correct. May, May 6th, Saturday, May 6th. Um, in his oath that he was required to take to officially become crowned before he was crowned, um, he had to promise to keep the faith of the Church of England, of which only about years ago, 2% of the people even attended or cared about. Um, but he also had to promise not only that he would keep the Church of England uh, Protestant, but that future monarch would keep the Church of England Protestant. Okay, so when Mary, Queen of Scots' son, James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England as well, for the union of the two parts of Great Britain, when he became king and ruled out of London, and ruled out of London, uh, then uh, the, the union of Great Britain became officially Protestant. Okay. Um, and then this last one, uh, I guess that is the last one. Okay, so, oh, the last one, I, last thing I'd like to say is you're absolutely correct that you have to then ask yourself, well, why was the stone, assuming my informed opinion is correct, that the only reason Skoda would have been, the queen of Egypt would have been sent away or sent herself away with its retinue and all these ships with the stone? is if it was, in fact, the coronation stone. So, in effect, if it was the official coronation stone, Tut, who was crowned after, was also illegitimate, as have been all of the English. Yes, that's what I find so 
uh, gobsmacking astonishing. It's like everybody's agreed to make the lie the truth and the truth be damned. Yeah, and I do believe that the original stone, I believe Robert Morningstar agrees with this. We've talked about it, I believe, as I recall. Um, I believe that the original stone of destiny was, in fact, a rather large meteorite, very black, very metallic, probably an iron nickel meteorite um, that is shaped kind of like a, a cone because that's the shape when, when uh, a metallic meteorite, uh, a, a rocky meteorite comes through the atmosphere, the plasma heats up and uh, eats away the front part of the stone. Um, so that when it, if anything that lands on Earth is often shaped like a nose, basically like a nose cone. Yeah, well, that's basically because of aerodynamics and re-entry, yes. and that's why space capsules have the same shape. Correct. By the way, that shape also was immortalized in the ancient Egyptian Benben stone. Well, that's what I was just going to say. The original Benben was clearly a meteorite, and I believe that the, the, the true holy stone of ancient Egypt that in their mind obviously connects as above, so below, it was literally a falling star. It appeared to be a falling star. But that became the center of the solar religion, by the way, uh, at Heliopolis for a very, very long time, way before Akhenaten, way back to probably 3,000 at least, three, maybe 3,500 BC or, or even earlier. But the the stone that ended up being the physical stone that the pharaohs were were um, crowned upon, that was not the Ben stone because you couldn't stand on it. It was canonical. Mm. So, so the, the mop stone that was the... Uh, coronation stone of the pharaohs up through Akhenaten and then Skoda took it and ended up with it. By the way, ended up with it in Ireland where the kings of Scotland were crowned on it in Tara before it was taken uh, to Scotland and ended up at Moot Hill at Scone. So, so yes, I think that it definitely did literally what the, what this stone, the real stone, that the Knights Templars have in Scotland, what it represents going all the way back to Akhenaten and ancient Egypt is in fact the Ben Ben stone, which almost certainly was a meteorite. Hmm. I may differ with that later in the show. We've got about an hour and so left. Let's, let's go now. I want to bring on Maria at the top of the hour when she has a clear field. And then we have, of course, Robert. But I want to bring on Georgia Lambert, who is our resident metaphysician. She worked for 10 years with uh, Manly Hall. And uh, she, she brought us this amazing non, unknown fact of history about George Washington and this whole story. So, Georgia, welcome tonight to this uh, Charles III discussion. Good evening. Hi, Georgia. Hello, Barbara. Uh, if I could just throw in a couple of things to bolster some of the points that Barbara made. First of all, uh, Barbara's number 11. If, if anybody is interested in this subject and they only want to get one book about it, get the Pat Gerber book that yeah. Barbara recommended. That, that'll give you the best overview. The other thing is Barbara was making a point about the uniqueness of the relationship between England and Scotland more so than England and Wales or England and Ireland. Um, we can see this in, in two really important places. Number one is the Union Jack flag, yeah. which, which is a Knights Templar cross, the red cross on the white field, and the Scottish cross, which is the uh, 
sideways cross, the St. Andrew's cross, like an hourglass, the, the white cross on blue, which uh, that, that particular cross symbolizes the union of higher and lower worlds. When is those two, blue, isn't it a blue cross on white? Uh, might be, yeah. Yeah. I think uh, anyway, um, it's it's the union of those two crosses that's on the Union Jack. The other thing is on the um, coat of arms. You see a lion on one side and the unicorn on the other. The unicorn is a symbol of Scotland, the lion a symbol of England, and this has to do with the lion being the heart chakra and the unicorn being a symbol of the head chakra. And of course, the kids' store, the kids' uh, nursery rhyme about the lion and the unicorn chasing each other all around the town has to do with the relationship between head and heart esoterically and uh, energetically. Hmm. Very interesting. One of the things that I've been intrigued with is there have been several studies done. I forget the last one, but there, there's this extraordinary, totally non-coincidental relationship. And we've got about 30 seconds here until we have to go. So maybe I should pick it up on the other side. Um, thank you, guys. We will come back in, in just a, a couple of minutes here. When we come back, we're going to bring on Maria Wheatley, who, of course, is our resident expert on Britain because she is British. She is in Britain this morning, and she has just come back from Egypt. So discussion of uh, connection between Britain and Egypt are totally derogaire. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We're playing music from the coronation written by very famous composers throughout the last couple, 300 years. This one again is Handel from called Zadok the Priest, from that secret anointing. Why is the anointing done in secret? Curious minds wonder. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. 
Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone on this uh, now Sunday night, Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. We're playing background music as our break music from the coronation of His Majesty King Charles III. But is he really? Well, in any case, he's the King of England, but is he King of Great Britain? And this is really, really weird. And oh, this is a great harp. Anyway, um, Georgia, I want to come back to you to talk about the connection, the Washington-American uh, connection to England, and then we're going to go to Maria for uh, some viewpoints from the British Isles. And Ruggiero uh, has also joined us. He's suffering from hay fever, so I don't expect him to say a lot, maybe just a few words about uh, his thoughts on what he's heard this morning. So, Georgia, please tell us what Washington had to do with the crown. And also Robert Morningstar. Uh, oh, did I forget Robert? Robert yeah. is so patient. Okay. So, yeah, we've got to cram a lot into an hour. Georgia, go. Um, we covered this on an earlier show. But, but we have new uh, audience, so. That's true. Uh, without uh, going into a whole long thing, uh, Washington's family history, his actual blood lineage, ties him to the royal family of Scotland. Uh and the uh, family crest, the, the original name was Wessington, and the original family crest had stars and bars on it, and an eagle flying to the west, and all kinds of fascinating things too long to go into. I mean, very prophetic. And uh, as Barbara mentioned, when uh, they were trying to figure out if they wanted a president or a king or what you know, was going to go down. They offered the crown of America to Bonnie Prince Charlie uh, in exile in France. And he was old and didn't want to be bothered and uh, said no. And they offered it to Washington, not just because he was a, a, a general that won the war for them, but because of his bloodline, because of his lineage, he was part of the royal bloodline. Fascinating, absolutely. The, the other thing I wanted to just quickly throw in there um, about the secrecy of the anointing, where they put up the screens for Charles's anointing. Right. Um, there's a wonderful book. It's a it's a rather esoteric book, uh, but everybody should have it in their library. It's called The Science of the Sacraments. And it's an esoteric book by Ledbetter. It's put out by the Theosophical Society that goes into the esoteric meaning of all of the rites of the church, from baptism through to last rites. And the anointing in some ways is similar to the baptism in that holy oil is used. And the priest actually opens the shirt or the breast to mark the holy oil on the heart chakra uh, in front and behind and also on the forehead. So um, 
the secrecy was not only because of the rights themselves, but because of the state of undress was considered unseemly. But uh, if you're interested in the esoterics behind all of those motions, why they use oil in one place, why they use water in another, the colors of the vestments that the priest uses for baptism or last rites, it's all explained in Science of the Sacraments by Ledbetter. Wow. So in part, the king or queen behind those screens during the anointing becomes naked before God. Well, at least part of the the heart area. Well, it's all uh, symbolic, but it's like... It's, it's symbolic. And, you know, it's also sort of symbolic of the state of undress that the Masonic candidate goes mm, through. I was thinking the identity of the rituals, the two ceremonies, very... Right. You know, very overlapping. Super. Okay, Maria, welcome. Oh, hi, Richard. Hi, <laughs> Good, morning. Good morning. Good um, morning. I would just... Go ahead. I'd just Go like ahead. to point out a few things. I thought the, you might. <laughs> I feel are very important. King Charles III, that was a public appearance at Westminster on the 6th of May. He was actually anointed in private ceremony two days before on the eve of Beltane. Oh. So that was for the public's face only. And there were shamans present from the Amazon in the very private ceremony. You have to remember that the royal family do not share what they do. It was all a, just a, literally a show. It certainly was. But where the uh, throne, that ancient throne that Barbara's been talking about was placed in Westminster Abbey is probably equally as important as the Stone of Destiny. Because at Westminster Abbey, it's laid out so that there's an esoteric center of the monument. And beneath that center is what's called the Cosmati Pavement. And that's number one in my items that I sent earlier. I'm looking at it. It's amazing. Yeah, this is sacred geometry. What it represents and all monarchs do this, whether it's in ancient China, presents that they are at the center of the universe, of the cosmos, hence cosmati pavement. So on the one side you have the sun, on the other side you have the moon, linking the king to the heavens above. But this is and a direct pictorial ideal. The idea of kingship yeah. is lowered from heaven, going exactly. back to the Sumerians. Exactly, and that's what this pavement represents. It represents the heavenly aspect of the of the king. And it's also aligned north-south, east-west, perfectly. And the north is always the most powerful aspect in kind of ancient law in England. I mean, judges would sit in the north, for example. Gypsies would read tarot in the north. So that's very, very important where that was placed. And on item number two, I show a 1950 survey of Westminster's Abbey's Earth Energies by the master Dowsett Guy Underwood. And I've been into the Abbey myself. And that shows exactly where the throne was put. It's on a really powerful type of Earth Energy sought after by both the Templars and the masons alike and it's like a, an oval spiral shape so there's a lot of earth energies at that point infusing the stone 
infused heaven, linking those heavens to earth below. But we must as well think, where does the name Rex come from? He is Charles Rex, just like Elizabeth I is Elizabeth Rex. Well, if we go back to the old Indo-European language, for example, we find that Reg, R-E-G, means movement along a straight line. One way or another, this word became entwined with words that to do with order, like regiment, prince regent, all of this, these words represent that, and also rex. But it also seems regent. to have a hint of cosmic motion in yes. a straight line. Yes, uh, it does. I mean, it became embroiled with reg, raj, regent, and reich. They're all from that Indo-European word. And today we have the word ruler means both a straight line, edge, queen, mm -hmm. king, and lay. Oh, my line. God. You're right. Oh, my. You're right. <gasps> exactly. Wow. So think about how um, the palaces um, are laid out. You have a long road going down to it. Yes, like Buckingham Palace. Look on the map. That's the straight line. That's the regent lay. It's known as the regent, reich, or raj line to the royals. We call them lay lines. For examples, they have this multi-purpose meaning. And all stately homes designed by the Masons have that. They have a long sweeping drive going to a circular center, which is the esoteric center, because in ancient British law, the esoteric center is where the genie, the heart, the spirit of the land lies. And that's why our stately homes have a long drive, circular monument, and that's how you enter the esoteric center of the land. So the stone of destiny is placed at the esoteric center of Westminster, linking to heaven and earth a straight line that they would process to along Buckingham Palace is all the kinds of symbolism. But talking about the Union Jack flag as a Brit, that's very modern. Well, we call 1606 modern uh, when we look at our prehistory. And prior to that, when it was, we were invaded by the Normans in 1066 and our King Harold was defeated, the original flag adopted for that was a golden cross with the fleur-de-lis and birds around it. So that was a really, really ancient flag. But that was French. That was Norman. That was William the Conqueror, who was actually from Viking blood. All the Normans were from Viking descent. So our much older flags are from ancient Britain. So I really do feel it's the power of place is where the throne is. That's really important. When I looked at the coronation, I noticed these screens, you know, covering the uh, you know, uh, anointing with oils, had, were, 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 looked like red velvet. Face of each in the middle was this large golden classic cross screening him from all directions. That's William the Conqueror, uh, his, his energy placed uh, on that part. But again, in the private ceremony of Charles III, there was only a select few present and they could see the anointment. This was just for the public face. It was for, you know, a kind of sham crowning in a way. So you mean the Brits don't know that there were two coronations, one they get to see and one that's really the real one? 
I think they do. It was widely reported. How would they not know in an era of social media? I mean, I, see, I don't know how they, any well, of these did. super secrets have been kept secret and not looked at more seriously unless everybody outside. I mean, if, if only 2% are Anglicans, members of the church, and 9% really give a damn about the monarchy, it's like, okay, you have that wonderful show. We love the gold gilded carriage. We love when they wave. And now let's get back to the pub and real business. I think it was widely reported and a lot of people realize this is what the royal family does. It has one face for the media and it has one face for ritual. They're very ritualistic, the royal family. Everything to them has this back meaning for them. Well, all monarchies do. All monarchies. See, that's the whole. All right. So uh, final question. Did Did the secret coronation, the real one, take place in Westminster Abbey? It's believed so, yes, because you have well, to be Well, if you have to be at the right place of, geodetically, how could they do it anywhere else? Exactly. You have to be on the Cosmati pavement. Yeah, you've got to be in the, the center of the universe. <laughs> if, if the two go together, you can't have one without the other. They hmm. marry. They marry heaven and earth. That's the most important concept about a crowning. So if there's security footage from the buildings around Westminster Abbey, and we look two days earlier, we should see a whole bunch of very important people sneaking into the Abbey. Well, I'd like to think that that could be shown to the British public, and especially England, because we, we see him as the King of England. We don't see him as the King of Scotland in any way. Not most British people, uh, modern English people today. We see Scotland and Ireland and Wales being very independent. Okay. Uh, you have a number five item there which is very bizarre because to me it almost looks sacrilegious. This is very interesting because Sir Christopher Wren was behind some of the kind of redesigning. Tell people of- who Christopher Wren was. Christopher Wren is a very famous architect going back a few hundred years now that was contributing a lot to St. Paul's Cathedral. He, he was he's some of the wonderful landmarks in London are done by Sir Christopher Wren. And there's a very powerful lay that links Westminster Abbey to Stonehenge and one of the trilithons therein, which is a stone setting of three stones at the heart of Stonehenge. And that is the actual writing of Christopher Wren, who wrote his name on that lay, Wren. If you look carefully, (laughs) it says Wren, because he was linking himself to the lay, to the regent line that goes to Westminster. So what you're also saying, this is amazing, when the secret ceremony and then the public coronation of King Charles took place in that throne, in that cathedral, it's connected through the lay directly to Stonehenge, which is connected in the mathematics to upstairs to heaven. Exactly so. That is, again, this marriage that comes together. And Wren was just literally signed his name there saying, I will be here for all time, (laughs) carved in stone. Well, he will now. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Um, Let's see. Um, uh, Before we get too far afield, I want to – poor Ruggiero is suffering from hay fever. Ruggiero, as a uh, member of the the nation – for which you have now coronated a new king. Do you have any thoughts on the subject? Um, well, firstly, I think the 
the symbolism is uh, really, really important. And uh, good morning to everybody. Good morning. Uh, great show listening in, actually. I was like, uh, Maria, what you just said about Stonehenge was uh, well, fascinating. And I've, I've been there myself. But um, I've, I've pondered over the, the coronation for quite a long time. And in the UK, some people are not particularly bothered about, you know, whether the, uh, we have a king or whether we just have a state like you guys have got. But I think I heard a quote a while ago that having um, you know, kingship and having, uh, having order is supremely, supremely important and has stopped us fighting with each other for the last God knows how many hundreds of years. There's also kind of what it stands for with you know, humanity. Like uh, you, put, you might have some information that I don't, Richard, about the symbolism of the crown when, when we spoke quite a while back about the queen and what that meant to us. Um, the queen stands for, uh, she was to balance the scales as far as I understand. So when you look at some of the symbology and pictures of, um, of the royalty, there might be a dragon and um, some other symbols like a, a mammal and they'll be on scales. So to keep things in order and to keep lineage, we have a royal family that stands for that, that pinnacle of things. So that was my thought on, on the royal family but, uh, and about the coronation. But I think um, holding on to history is important because without, without knowing where you come from, you don't know, don't know where you're going and it keeps us generally in a state of peace. So that's, that's my, my point on that. But Maria, um, have you, you've been up to the stones obviously in, in Stonehenge. A million and one times. <laughs> she lives there. She's got this little tent where she does our readings off to the side behind the heelstone. <laughs> yeah, I, I went to a, a crazy, um, what was it, solstice um, one year when I was, uh, I was staying up in Salisbury and we went to the solstice. Did you go and um, did you notice the different energies, the, the temperatures between the stones at certain times of the year? Oh, absolutely. And we've done a lot of measurements with the electromagnetic frequencies that they emit. I've done uh, tests on earth energies. I, I thoroughly explored Stonehenge and numerous stone circles across, across Europe for temperature change. And it's what, the way the stone is carved. So at Stonehenge, you have what's called the spine stone. And the way that that's carved emits the most heat. Okay. Fascinating. So which one's the heel stone? The, the spine stone is inside, it's a trilithon. The heel stone is outside of Stonehenge. It's called an outlier. And yeah, it's about got, sort of 50 yards away. Because that's got a totally different sort of heat energy feel compared to the, uh, to the other stones. Yeah, you're seeing that in a ruinous state. It used to have an enclosure, uh, quite a high chalk enclosure surrounding it so that only a, a, a small amount of people could enter the enclosure of the heelstone. You're seeing it in a ruinous way these days. Yeah. Thank you, Maria. Um, Richard, I was going to ask if you've got any symbolism on, on the crown. I was very uh, interested in um, Robert's features that he pulled up about the elongated skulls. And how, you know, well, Africa. Maria's right in the center of that extraordinary set of discoveries. Maria, talk about that. Yes, I mean, I discovered the elongated skulls of Great Britain, and I was, when Barbara was talking, I think the reason why, you know, Akhenaten's daughter came over was representing the ancient British people who also had the elongated uh, sized skulls. Really? And it was always just the royalty 
in ancient Britain that had elongated skulls. The others had long skulls, but they weren't as extended as the royalty that went into the long barrows. So we're linking royals from ancient Egypt to the royals of ancient England. That's phenomenal. I and, had no idea. And that. ultimately, my model is that these guys are worshipped, made kings, made queens, made rulers, because kingship was lowered from the family that was not down here, and they were their representatives. So we're looking at a literal yes. truth in a Dickinsonian fashion, concealed in layers of mythology, ending in a stone. <laughs> Can I, can I throw something in oh, here? Oh, by all means. Um, Ruggiero made a really important point, and, and you're, you're, you're kind of dancing around it, and, uh, and that is the connection to the past. You know, esoterically, there are certain uh, areas of the world that have to do with synthesis, and Britain is one of them. And, you know, I've seen things written about this latest coronation about, you know, it's not relevant to modern times and, you know, it's anti-Christian and so on and so forth. That's the point that this particular monarchy, which isn't the oldest monarchy on the planet, the Japanese monarchy is actually older, even though it's been over since World War II, um, but the, the British monarchy is a living connection between the ancient past where the grid work of the planet was understood and this ancient technology all, all the way up through the, the Druids and into modern times. Britain is a, a, a conscious living connection in its monarchy that links that previous epoch of humanity to the present one. And it'll... It'll be Britain that'll be at the forefront of rediscovering the grid and the energy and how it works. And uh, it's, it's a really important connection. Absolutely. And when we look to ancient legends of the British Isles, King Lud, he was the, the king that realized that England could prophesize war. And what he did, he heard on May Eve there was two dragons, a white dragon, which represents England's enemy, and a red dragon, which represents Britain herself. And these were fighting, and he had to find the esoteric center of England. We're not talking the geometrical center, the esoteric center. And he found that to be in Oxford, where he built a pit, and the dragons went in, and they were later transferred to Dinas Emrys and enter the Merlin, who started to predict that the Saxons would invade. But when we go back to the Druidic times of the British Isles, Oxford was the biggest university called a core. So yes, you're right. Uh, we do need to link the past because the dragons represent the earth currents of the land that reside at the esoteric center in Oxford. There is a term dragon currents. Is that where it comes from? Yes. Uh, that comes from ancient China, but in uh, the old British law, yes, we look at them as dragons, a, a red dragon and a white dragon and a green dragon in British legends. And, of course, the term Pendragon comes from Master yes. of the Dragon Currents. Uh, yes. you, you know, I, I, I had a very famous friend who, uh, unfortunately, has now died. He was involved at Raytheon, MIT, 
He walked across the Sahara Desert when he was younger. He also walked across China when he was younger. And uh, his whole family were named after very mythical characters. And his oldest son was named Pendragon. Wow. I'd like to talk about the, um, the structure of the Druid Order and how that was transferred to the structure of the United States government sometime. In China... Lung Mei means dragon. For those who don't know, this yes. is Robert Morningstar, who I was just about to introduce. Robert, go ahead. Well, you've uh, you've unearthed a tremendous amount of a wealth of information, and I'm honored to be on this program, and I'm honored to be uh, be part of uh, Barbara's revelations here. I have a. Uh, bullet points. Well, why don't you talk about your connection with Barbara and then we can move on. Okay, well, Barbara called me and sent me the information about uh, the coronation and uh, unfortunately you couldn't do the show and I told her this would be old news if we waited too long and uh, (laughs) we didn't know when we'd get back on. So we did a program on May 7th, which I recorded and have turned into a video and I've um, really enhanced it with the best photographs that I could find. And I tell the story that she told, so I don't have to go over it. I'd like to make a couple of points. The Ben Ben Stone or the meteorite theory of the the Stone of Destiny. There's a very interesting thing about meteors. She said that they were conical, triangular or conical. I did extensive studies of this phenomenon. And it turns out that the corner, one of the corner angles of meteors very often turns out to be 52 degrees. Do you know the significance of that? Well, that's the angle of the pyramid, the Great Pyramid. The base angle. Yes, the base angle of the pyramid. So it is possible that they've got that idea of, of the sacredness of this angle coming down uh, from... Mm, I don't think so. Stan Tenen but, proved to yes. me years ago okay. that the angle, the whole pyramid is built out of limestone, right? No. Well, except for the casing stones and the interior granite, most of the mass of the pyramid is limestone. Yes, exactly. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. The reason that's critical is that when you take a microscope and you zero in on crystals of calcium carbonate, limestone, yeah. they mirror the angles of the pyramid itself, 52, 104, etc., so the pyramid- yeah, we'll look at the we'll look at the video that I offered from Tim Saunders, the building, the the Great Pyramid, 2019, and they make a very good case for uh, the pouring of a special kind of concrete that the Egyptians well, discovered. Well, that's the whole Davidovitz the- model. Yeah, that's a very fine uh, model and makes more sense than anything else I've heard. I'm talking now, like about I'm talking about the geometry, points, not the Richard. We don't have a lot of time. And uh, so bullet points, the UFO flying over the coronation and uh, Lord Mountbatten. Prince Philip and Lord Mountbatten were very heavily involved in the UFO phenomenon. And in 1955, a UFO landed in Broadlands, which was Lord Mountbatten's uh, estate. The UFO landed. It knocked over the uh, one of his gardeners or a bricklayer who worked there. His name was Frederick Briggs. He saw the UFO, it came down, it had it, it knocked him off his bicycle, and it made the bicycle feel so heavy that he couldn't get out from under it for a while. When he extricated himself from it, he had contact with the occupants, and he said that they spoke English, but they spoke English with a German accent, okay? 
Next, I want to talk about, uh, we're coming to the break. but Yeah, we basically have only about 15 seconds, so let's hold okay. it until we get to the other side. My guest this morning, almost too numerous to mention, everyone with a piece of this extraordinary story. Uh, when I told someone that I was going to be doing, you know, a show on the coronation, they said basically, ah, come on, that's passe, it's old news, who cares? Well, I think we should care because, again, I think that maybe... Just maybe the British monarchy, the current king of England, because of this ancient lineal connection between monarchy and the gods in heaven itself, could be the conduit to actual disclosure in the 21st century. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, now Monday morning, here in the land of enchantment. Welcome to the ending of a really incredibly interesting, fascinating program covering the coronation and the backstory and the side story and the sidecar and the caboose of the real history of the monarchy of the current king of England, including the fact that he may only be the King of England. Anyway, uh, Robert, please continue. Robert? Did you mute? Are you there? Yes. Yes, I am here. There you are. I would like to say item number one, I'd like you all to watch it. Okay, we um, need to go to Robert's items, right? Right. All right. So... Basically, 
the story that was told today, but enhanced with some really amazing uh, photographs that I was able to uh, find and uh, put into a, a pretty good, pretty good one-hour uh, documentary. And Barbara, thank you for contacting me, and I'm really glad we did it. It's on Rumble, so I ask you to watch it. Second one is the article. Uh, Barbara sent me the points, bullet points that she used tonight. And between the two of us, we fleshed out a very good article. It's in Substack. That's the second item. The next three pictures are um, illustrations of Edward I and his soldiers stealing the Stone of Destiny from Stone <laughs> Cathedral and taking uh, the wrong one. It's like a graphic uh, novel. Yeah, Edward rides away. But the next series of photographs, uh, which I think are really exquisite, they're, they're comparisons of Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and Skoda, and the unique shape of Skoda's head, which led me to discuss that oddity and my theory that Akhenaten and his family were hybrids. And uh, you said that this kingship came down from heaven. Obviously, we're talking about uh, celestial beings interacting, having intercourse with human beings to create a um, more intelligent and uh, inspired race of beings. In item number 12, 13, and 14, we have photographs that I discovered about 20 years ago in Bob Breyer's book on Egyptian um, mummification. Bob Breyer was a professor at Long Island oh University. Oh, my God, Robert. Yeah. Look right. at what Listen that looks this. like. Listen to this. Holy, holy, holy. I'm going to tell you. So Bob Breyer was the first, well, at least the first Westerner, but he said the first man in modern history to actually perform a real mummification. And I attended his lecture and saw his film, and how they prepared the body for mummification was to bury it in natron right. for three months to dry it out. And then the wrapping... Na- natron is a desiccating salt from the hills of Egypt. That's right. And it's also one of the components of this Egyptian concrete that's described in, in the Great Pyramid 2019 movie yeah. that Tim Saunders gave us, which I recommend to everyone. So these, these two fetuses were discovered in, in canopic jars in King Tut's tomb. And Bob Breyer produced these pictures. And I instantly saw, my good, well, my God, one of them looked <clears throat> basically human, but the other one <clears throat> looks basically out of this world, extraterrestrial. <clears throat> so that led number, me to... Number, number 13. Yes. This 12 is uh, the jar and one of the fetuses. Number 13 is the jar and the other fetus. And uh, the close-up of the, the more human one is the one in uh, number, number 14. 14 yeah. yeah, but <clears throat> number 14, that thing on the right, looks to me, as I studied it, at like a typical Zeta, gray Zeta ET hybrid. Now, here's the terrible thing I discovered. I was really excited about these pictures. I found them in the 1990s. <clears throat> then I kept following the story, seeing when we would get to see them. Remember, King Tut's uh, treasures came around. Well, guess what happened? 
they, they crushed the skull of this creature, the one on the right. I saw photographs of it, and I said, that could not have happened by accident. Of course not. It's not, it's not an oops thing. No, you know, no. You're holding this most precious thing going back to the age of King Tut and Hugnaughton, and somebody goes, oops, and drops it. Well, if you drop it, you crack it. But when I saw the actual photograph that Zawi Hawass and the Department of Egyptology in, in uh, Egypt released, only the head was damaged, and it looked like it had been smashed with a hammer. Of course. They had to. Of course, because they don't want to believe anything about these this extraterrestrial No, 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 no. They don't want us to believe anything. <clears throat> That's right. They know right. they don't want. It's the big, big, big fucking secret. Sorry, guys. Well, the human French, race is. French. Remember last night we talked about chattel. The human yes. race is property of other members of the family, which moves yes. us into the direction of what kind of interstellar government or governments and emissaries are we dealing with really? And are they really monarchies and empires? and nothing like what we're trying here. Right. Well, last night we talked about <clears throat> the book of Enoch, Semiyaza, Azazel, mm-hmm. the fallen angels who tampered with uh, human nature. And there is a term in theology <clears throat> and metaphysics called the reparation of Christ. And the word reparation means to repair. When you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, you find out that there was a sacred precinct in, in Qumran, just as there was a sacred precinct at uh, Amarna. And in this sacred precinct, only perfected human beings could enter. No one with any kind of genetic deformity, defect, moral or uh, physical could enter there because, according to the Dead Sea Scrolls, angels were coming and going to Qumran on chariots of glory. And one of the most interesting passages in the Dead Sea Scrolls says that should an Essene woman come into contact with angel seed on her arms or on her thighs, that she had to go through 10 days of ritual purification. And I say to myself now, ritual purification to them then is what we would call decontamination now. I want to talk about the interruptions of the blue bloodline of the English kings. From the time of Edward having seized the stone and all the English kings, the bloodline went down uh, actually since um, James, right? Because there was an interruption in the male transmission with Queen Elizabeth I. Every king from that time until the current kings were of pure English blue bloodlines. But this was interrupted when Queen Elizabeth became queen and she was married to Prince Philip. Prince Philip was of German descent and Greek descent. The Battenbergs had been made uh, princes by King George V. He apparently was very fond of a certain Lord Louis Alexander Battenberg. And in 1917, he had him named uh, a prince. And they changed their name from the German Battenberg to Mountbatten. Then they, uh, they intermarried with the Greek royal line. And 
the uh, Louis Alexander had Prince Philip as his son. Prince Philip married Queen Elizabeth, and this is who engendered Prince Charles. So this thing about the royal bloodline is very important, but it seems that a German bloodline ascended into this um, into the uh, monarchy with the Mountbatten's. And that's something that uh, a lot of English people say, he's not my king. Now, here's another thing. Some really weird things happened with Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles over the last four years. The first strange thing to me was that Queen Elizabeth announced about four years ago that she was a lineal descendant of Mohammed through Spanish kings, that certain Spanish Moorish kings, and she had the, she gave out the, uh, the family tree and claimed to be a uh, lineal descendant of Muhammad. And about three years ago, now this is to me the ultimate weirdness, Prince Charles came out and said that he was a direct lineal descendant of Vlad, who was known as the Impaler. The Impaler? As, yeah, Vlad the Impaler. Why would you he, brag he about that? <laughs> Well, he just came out and owned up to it, and uh, that's what he said. I'd like to go back a little bit now to Barbara's uh That sounds so Emily Dickinson, like there's a truth there that he's telling, but not really. Yes, well, let me tell you about this. I was, I was going to save it for later, but I have a book on my desk here. It's called The Thousand Year Reich. It was written by Paul Winkler in 1941, and a dear friend of mine gifted it to me. It's a treasure. And in it, he says that this whole thing, the New World Order and Nazism, were not a new thing. No, of course not. (laughs) This has been a plan since the 1700s at least. No, it's an extraterrestrial plan just migrated here. Yes, but it was downloaded into the German Junkers. Yes, okay, good. And the Holy Roman Emperors, you know, the Kaisers. And they had a secret society that had the most unusual name of Society of Lizards. In German, the German name means the Society of Lizards. So that's another really weird uh, connection with that whole Nazi mystique of of contacting aliens, reptilian aliens from Aldebaran Mm -hmm. and leading us to this master race theory and creating a new race of uh, blonde beast. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago. But the the point is that there was an interruption in the, um, the blue bloodline of English Scottish kings and with the uh, coming in of the Battenbergs. So this is a very important thing. Uh, going back to the, the anointing, you, you remember, Richard, you called, and I, I couldn't talk for a long time because I was speaking to a friend in London. Yes. And he, he was apprising me about the constituents of the holy oil that was used ah. in the anointing. Now, you said that it came from Israel. Well, and that was, was actually, from- I think, Barbara. Okay, well, whoever said it, it's probably true. But let us remember, where did the religion of Israel come from? It came from Egypt. Yep. And and now, what was revealed to me by my English scholar friend, he said, do you know what was in the oil? I said, well, no, what? He said, well, there was the oil of sperm whale. I said, really? And he said, 
Yes, there was whale oil, but get this, there was crocodile oil. And he said, and the crocodile oil takes it back to the Nile, Nile River crocodiles. And the reptilian aspect. And the reptilian connection. So this is an amazing... Okay, let me me ask a dumb question. Hold on, I got it. I got to add something here. Sure. Um, I've I've read that the conical hat of the Pope is actually the crocodile. Yes. Well, the conical hat, uh, there's a fish hat as well. Mm -hmm. And that fish hat also goes back to Samaria because this, of the whole Sumerian Onus legend. Onus, yes. Onus came out of the sea because the extraterrestrials probably made a sea landing like Apollo did. Exactly. Of, it, it was not right. a fish. It was a guy wearing a suit that looked right. fishy. Uh, a suit with a special kind of helmet. And hiding and, from somebody uh, under the Persian Gulf. Yes. So that yes. indicates a war, a galactic war. We're a minor, yep. minor principality on the edge of a spiral arm engaged in something interstellar and galactic and so huge nobody can wrap their mind around it. But the genetics trace to kingship lowered from upstairs. Yes, the, con- the conical hat is also called a mitre and it relates to the mitral valve of the heart where the blood of the heart moves out to feed the rest of the body. Without ah. which, of course, you cannot have life. Yeah. M-I-T-R-E, mitre. Yep, yep. A... There's another connection that I have to add really quick to, to uh, and then let Robert go ahead, about the connection to Egypt. And that is, I can't remember who was saying it, but um, sh- someone said, I think probably Georgia, that uh, or Maria, that the function of the queen was to balance um, yes, she said that was me. That was me. Yeah, yeah, Rogero, maybe. Yeah, the, the queen was the balance. The whole well, ma- that, the, the the principle of Ma. Precisely Ma's function. Yep. And the stone of destiny, the original Pharaoh's coronation stone, was Ma's stone, and the Pharaoh had to pledge, uh, not only in his original uh, coronation, but to be reconfirmed by the priesthood every year at the. Um, the confirmation ceremony that, that they would then have a big feast when, when the um, the pharaoh of course said, "Oh yes, I, I haven't done any of the bad things in the laws of Mott. Um And so Mott, her function uh, in the the most the most important belief system of the ordinary ancient Egyptians was that when they died, they presented their spirit body, their astral body, their double, whatever, um, at Osiris's door where their heart was weighed against a feather and they had to answer the questions, all of the 40 or 42 or 43 questions of the laws of Mott. They were negative. Can you pledge that you haven't murdered anyone? Have you pledged you haven't raped anyone, etc.? And so the the function um, those laws of Mott um, had to be confirmed or pledged to in order to get through Osiris's door into the afterlife. Right. And well, a further I, and a further uh, example of the heart symbology is the bishop's crosier, uh, the staff. It's uh, a, a representation of the aortic arch that comes off the heart, 
that again delivers blood to the rest of the body. It goes back to the uh, Egyptian cross and, uh, crossier and flail. The crossier is again the symbol of the monarch being the intermediary between the divine and the rest of the people, the rest ah, of the body. The interlocutor. Yeah. Um, I'd like to offer a show one time, one of these days, where I'll make my case that Akhenaten was either Moses or that his his mayor was, and took over the movement. One of the objections. That's totally. To, I agree with you. I just finished yeah. reading a book about it. Okay, oh, write well, write it down. We'll, we'll do we'll do a show on that some night. Go ahead. In 1996, I was uh, privileged to meet a man named Ahmed Osman, and in 1998. We met in London, and he gave me a tour of, of gave us, Jill and I, gave, uh, gave, a, gave us a tour of the British Museum. And when I sat down, I told him of my theory that Akhenaten was Moses or that his, uh, his assistant was and that the laws of Mott were the original Ten Commandments. And just as I described about the, um, the Qumran community having a sacred person in its center, into which only perfected beings or the elect could enter, Amarna had that too. And Amarna and the North Gate and the South Gate had a steely giant stones on which were etched, engraved, the laws of Mat. Now the story, according to the Bible, is that when the rebellion of the golden calf occurred, that God and Moses destroyed the original Ten Commandments that had to be replaced. But for me, the laws of Mott on those theories were the original tablets of the Ten Commandments, and they were overthrown when the, uh, the priesthood of Amun and Hathor, the worshippers of the, the, the cow goddess, came and destroyed Amarna. So I told this theory to Mr. Ahmed Osman, and he was mine. Now I said, one I'm of the sorry, objections to historians, he mind blown? Oh, mind blown. Okay. He saw the light. Let me just say, he lit up, mm-hmm. and he encouraged me to write a book about it. But the most important point is this. The Egyptians argue that Moses didn't exist and the Exodus never happened. And I said to Mr. Osman, he said, I said, Mr. Osman, the Exodus did exist, and Moses did exist, and he was Agnaten, and it's written in Egyptian history. And the Exodus is actually the departure of Agnaten and his retinue from Thebes migrating to build the city of Amarna, where they lived in the wilderness for 18 years. And then when that was overthrown, the remnant of Agnaten's cult or his religion made its way on over across into Arabia and the rest is the history of and the Jews. also into Scotland with Scotland. I was going to say one That's of his right. daughters made it all That's the right. way to Scotland. That's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, can, can everybody kind of take a deep breath and pause? Because Ruggiero has been studying something that's relevant to all this on the moon. Ruggiero, don't disappoint me now. <laughs> Let's go. Take me to the moon. The viewers can't see um, about um, coats of arms. And uh, when I was drawing for you, a while back, Richard, you said 
can you draw this for me on the moon? I was like, what's that? And he said, Mauro Smithy. I went, is that how we say it? Smithy, Smithy? Smithy. Like Mauro Smithy. So I started... He was a British draw- admiral. Oh, was he? Yeah. Oh. Um, and an astronomer. Well, Go ahead. Oh, so that's why he, he would have been chosen. Okay, so I started drawing it. And I was like, there's some geometry here. Um in two forms, the, the background is rectilinear geometry, uh, or it certainly appears that way. And then the foreground, the bigger picture, um, seems to have structure. So when, when I looked at my image yesterday, I was like, What's, what is going on with this? Um, it was reminding me of something. And what it's reminded me of is a um, coat of arms um, type symbol. So I put into the chat, which the viewers can't see. Someone's typing. Go ahead. uh, What is the significance of a coat of arms? And if you look look at that image I provided, you'll see it's a shield. So maybe if it stands for anything, that Mare Smithy is is talking um, to the viewer, uh, and it might mean something. So I I want to just share that with, uh, with the team. Okay, item number one in Ruggiero's section of Radio with Pictures, and you can remember or replay how to get there because we don't have time. Uh, and two is a sketch. Three is a composite. Uh, and they're very high resolution, Ruggiero. This thing is an enormous set of buildings, mega architecture, but built in a symbolic geometric form signifying something. Wow, because in the corner of the image too, I, I did those drawings when I zoomed in for you. You said, what do you see? And you really made me struggle. <laughs> and it jumped out. And I was like, ah, oh, aha. And it's got this funny maze-like puzzle to it. And again, in, in, in the UK, all of our uh, stately homes have got mazes that look quite like that, that interlocking geometry um, at Mario Smithy. Yeah, this could be an aerial image of a of a of a, of a British uh, garden. <laughs> if, if I can if I can bring it back to Egypt, I want to remind people that Cairo, which is where the pyramids and the, and the Sphinx etc. are, means means Mars. Um, no, it doesn't. <laughs> I was about to qualify that, Richard. I didn't say a word. No. <laughs> yes, you did. That was no, wrong. That was wrong. No, that was. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was going to say something. I was going to say something about Robert, but uh, yes, no, it does not mean Mars. Let let let, let, let Barbara finish. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was about to say it doesn't literally. It wasn't originally stated to mean Mars, but the conqueror, and the connection with Mars is because Mars is the planet of war and conquering. So. Um, but if you talk to um, when I was in Egypt in 2017, my Ph.D. Egyptian history professor who was on the tour with me confirmed that to the man and woman on the street, as well as to herself in her scholarship, that Cairo today means Mars. For what it's well, they're both wrong. <laughs> it means place of it, it means place of combat. 
and it Place refers which to is war, very... Ron. You're being a nitpicker. No, wait, wait, wait. Hey, I, I, she gets to say wait. I get to say wait. Hold on. I've been waiting the whole show. The I didn't want to introduce this, but it's very simple. There was a there's a legendary combat between Horus and Seth, and that's where it was supposed to have taken place. And when they when a little village that was nearby started to become a city, it was named Cairo to commemorate that. The name was changed to an Arabic word, which means place of conquest, which actually sounds exactly the same as the word Cairo. He was being a savvy bureaucrat by doing that. I think we're getting uh, guys. We got we have four minutes to the end of the show. We got you know I want I want to lift this up to a higher plane. I just wanted to make the point that through this connection, there's a connection back to Mars. Oh, it's not the like only connection. There's other a- one sentence. I'd like to utter one sentence. The original site of the battle between Horus and Seth was on the planet Mars, and that's why Mars has a gouged-out eye that's called the Eye of Mars, and we can do a program on that another time. So, yes, we're all right. There Mars is a solid documented, inescapable mathematical connection between Sidonia, where we have the face, the pyramids, the city, the alignments, all that, and Egypt. And I've demonstrated this. The the, the geometry, you know, signs and cosines of the face and the sphinx are identical. It was a coded message. So there's a fundamental Mars, you know, migrant connection between our ancient ancestors on Mars and their move to Earth, what happened in Egypt and in Europe, and now what we're discussing as a background for kingship lowered from heaven. And the bottom line is, is Charles going to step up to his uh, duty and connect us back to the stars? We'll see. We will see. (laughs) Let us not forget the connection between the three pyramids in Giza and the Tarsus Mountains, the three volcanoes. And directly across from Giza to the west is the most holy mountain in Egypt. It's called Al-Wajit. And that's the original Mount Olympus. And it just coincides with the Mount Olympus on Mars. Philip Morrison and uh, Carl Sagan knew exactly what they were looking at. They knew exactly. Hey, guys, I I, I hate to cut us off. We could go another three hours. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, go to theothersideofmidnight.com to look at the roster of tonight's show. Um, Amazing information, amazing interconnections, amazing implications for what could happen this year, next year, as we go back to the moon, all of us, and discover, hey, We're not just on this planet alone. So until next week, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on to morning. Good night, everyone, and thanks for listening. And we're clear. Okay, everybody can talk now. Oh, thank you, everybody. What a brilliant show.
Bravo, Barbara. Bravo, everyone. Wonderful show. It, it, was it really was. It's you know, a good show. <laughs> Ron, I well, would have said something about you if I'd known you were there. Well, I was hiding. I wanted I, to listen. I, okay, to okay. Then, then, then I don't. I won't feel guilty. I, you know. No, no, no. Do, do not. Do not. And I told Keith as much that I didn't want to participate. But then uh, <clears throat> someone pushed the wrong button by starting that. Cairo means more. But it's all, look, it it all winds up in the same place. Come on. Nitpicking is not a good idea sometimes. No, 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 I'm not nitpicking. This is factual. Ron? This is factual against tourism. I know you're there, Barbara. Yes, let me finish. This is tourism. I would have said the same thing you did. No, I don't think so. You'll have them out in the end. Hey, Georgia, thank Uh, you. You're welcome. By the way, I want to compliment everybody. Uh, like, like, I have a- like, like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rush. I want to comp everybody for dancing so neatly with everybody else tonight. It interwoved perfectly, perfectly, without a rehearsal. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. Yeah, yeah. It was backwards in high heels, like Ginger Rogers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Maria. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't even get into the idea you just come back from Egypt. So when you're ready, let me know and we'll do a whole show with Barbara. And maybe at that point, we'll talk about the experiment. Yeah, no. Maria, Maria, can you hang around long enough for me to have a word? Yeah, sure. I, I waited the whole show just to listen to you. And you just started to talk about dragons and uh, uh, Robert... Um, well, rested tension away from it. So. <laughs> I'd just I'd like to say uh, quickly, with another Mars link, uh, I'm in touch with the astronomer that calculated all the astronomy for Robert Braval and Graham Hancock, and there was an amazing Mars alignment at Edfu Temple uh, last winter solstice that, that seemed to have some kind of activation there. So there's a lot of Mars energy going on in Egypt at the moment. I'm not surprised. Oh. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. The connections are there. It's just that, that particular one is, is – never mind. I, uh, Robert, are you aware of uh, Emmanuel Valakovsky's book, uh, uh, Moses and Akhenaten? Yes, I have it, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I, I thought so. Yeah, because he got in a lot of trouble academically. Oh, I know, I, mean, I know. Always, he was always an outlier, but that kind of ended him on a professional Yes, level. I know, because those people in the 1950s were so doctrinaire. But I think that he was well, right they, on they the, almost they burned oh, William Rice. Right they built, but they burned William Rice books, and they almost burned him. He died yeah. in prison. That's how you know, 16th century we were, and you know, still are. As much as anything, the reason relative to that uh, Moses Akhenaten thing is that it screws up the timeline that they want us to believe. Yeah. Do you know yeah, that? Makes, uh, you know, Akhenaten had a mayor for Amarna. You know what the mayor's name was in Amarna? His name what? was Ra Moses. Yeah, that's right. Oh, Ra Moses. Now, now that's interesting. I believe yes. he was also a priest. Yes, he was also a priest. So it's either that Akhenaten was Moses or Ra Moses took over the movement after the death of Akhenaten and Nefertiti. Skoda went to Scotland and he took off into the desert. Um, and when you read the Bible, uh, it seems that they were walking through um, dry riverbeds. 
that had highlands. Like arroyos. Yeah, but Moses saw these tremendous storms coming. It doesn't really say that the Red Sea parted. It says that Moses saw this tremendous storm coming and he drove the people up into the highlands and that uh, there was basically a flash flood. So the flash flood coming over the cliffs of a dry riverbed would look to me like the waters of the Red Sea Party. Well, there's an alternative explanation, and it goes back to the guy, the genius that I used to know, who named his uh, firstborn Pendragon. Pendragon. He had done a lot of work on the whole uh, uh, Moses, you know, escape across the the Isthmus there and the Red Sea. His Mm -hmm. conclusion in the 1960s, when we have these discussions based on his own research, that it was not the Red Sea, it was the Reed Sea, the Reed Sea, which yes. is right on the edge. And in a mm-hmm. high wind, you can get a, 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 a feathering effect to where the water is pushed far out. You can cross safely. And when the wind changes, that's when the inundation rushes back. And that was his model for that story. Here's another interesting point in the Torah. I have a Torah from 1947. You know, the Bible and the Torah have been altered somewhat over the last 60 years. But in that Torah, it says that the night before that uh, engagement with the Egyptian army, the Lord went into the Egyptian camp and he disabled their chariot wheels so that they would fall off. That's a pretty... That's a pretty clever lord, you know? That sounds like hijacking. Sounds like a clever to me. Can I pass a thought on to Maria? Everybody will find it interesting, I'm sure. I just didn't want to tell anything personal and then interrupt the show flow. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.